The Iron Hands Third Company, Clan Rokan. Though the cause of every chapter of Adeptus Astartes is the same, their means and methods often differ. This is especially true of those chapters originating from the first founding. Descended from the warriors who followed their primarchs to war, these chapters' identities are strongly influenced by the legions they once were and by the scars they still bear from the dark days of the Horus heresy. The truth of this is seen clearly in the cold and embittered brethren of the Iron Hands. A chapter who despise the weakness of flesh above all, the Iron Hands bear a scar upon their collective soul that drives them to seek the purity and perfection of the machine. On the killing fields of Isvan V, their Primarch, Ferris Manus, was the first of his brotherhood of demigods to fall. He was cut down by Fulgrim, the cursed degenerate, the treacherous master of the Emperor's children, and there are many among the Iron Hands who believe that it was an excess of furious choler that led their Primarch to his doom. Thus, the Iron Hands, as a chapter, are driven to embrace logic and mechanical precision lest they fall prey to the same error that claimed their gene father. They bury their bile beneath strings of dispassionate numbers and purge their flesh in favour of the cold certainty of the machine. Despite all this, the Iron Hands are a brotherhood riddled with strange contradictions. While they strive constantly to free themselves from the weakness of emotion, they still hold fiercely to certain traditions which logic alone cannot account for. Amongst the most prominent of these are their clan companies, of which Rokan is but one. As with all chapters who adhere to the Codex Astartes, whatever that means, of course, with the return of its author, the Iron Hands are organised into ten companies, each composed according to the statutes laid down by Gilliman in his seminal work. Yet, where other chapters simply number these companies one to ten, the clan companies of the Iron Hands instead bear the honorific titles of the ten great clans of Medusa. These clans were believed, rightly or wrongly, to be the primogenitors of human civilization on their world, and possessed a near mythical significance even before the vast upheavals of Ferris Manus's arrival. Though Medusa possessed a bewildering plethora of minor and major clans, the ten great clans were considered the original and most mighty, the men and women from whom all others of Medusan birth could trace their heritage. To this very day, the glowering countenances of the ten original clan lords are still carved into the storm-wracked Felgarthi Mountains near the Medusan equator, protected from tectonics and atmospherics by vast stasis generators built during the Dark Age of Technology. Indeed, it is beneath the pitiless gaze of these monolithic statues that the Iron Hands test their potential recruits during the yearly eclipse known, of course, as the Iron Moon. In the aftermath of the Horus heresy, the guidance of their lost Primarch had been replaced by the collective minds of the Iron Council, and the battered legion faced division into chapters. In the days of the Primarch, 
Manners had always insisted his companies be named after the Medusan clans, believing that bearing these names would remind his sons of their link to the mortal men they had once been, and hold at bay their more aloof, detached tendencies. While the message behind this decision might have been lost with the Primarch's death, it was felt by the Iron Council that certain traditions should be retained, lest the successor chapters of the Iron Hands be weakened by a loss of identity. The honorific designation of clan companies were one such tradition. To this day, the institution of the clan holds true, though the battlefield roles of the companies remain as defined by the Codex Astartes, veterans forming the first company, and assault marines the eighth, for example. Their identities are bound into their adopted clan name. Any warrior joining a new company will discard his previous clan allegiances, being considered a member of his newly adopted clan from that day onward until his death or promotion to a new company. Traditionally, each clan company maintains certain traits and characteristics unique to itself and its ancestors, though this is true of some more than others. For example, the assault marines of Clan Borgar, notorious even on Medusa for its ruthlessness, are noted for their single-minded elimination of their targets down to the last man. Unfortunately, not all traditions have such a positive outcome. For instance, the Averni. When Ferris Manus fell, he was surrounded by his Averni elite, the first company, as they would become, most of whom were also slain in the maelstrom of carnage that claimed their Primarch's life. To many among the Iron Hands, the failure of the Averni to either dissuade their gene father from his rash course or exhibit the strength and fortitude to keep him alive was an unforgivable frailty. Ten thousand years on, this shadow still hangs over the elite of the Iron Hands. Promotion to veteran status is thus a bittersweet honour within the chapter, but it also imposes an onerous duty upon the recipient to do better than his ancestors did. No weakness is tolerated within the ranks of Clan Company Averni, and significant levels of cybernetic augmentation are common. As with all other Codex adherent chapters, the Iron Hand's tenth company consists of its new recruits, freshly implanted with the Primarch's gene seed in a ritual known as the Taking of the Soul Steel. The recruits must prove their worth of scouts before their elevation to full battle brothers, yet for Iron Hand's inductees, this is an especially brutal process. Taught during psycho-indoctrination and dogmatic sermons to revile the weakness of their own flesh, the scouts of clan company Dorvok must prove themselves capable of acting without weakness under any conditions. They must purge themselves of fear, pain and anger, repressing these feelings with mantras of cold logic before they will be considered for promotion to the ranks of one of the other clan companies, for the same reason, the initiates find themselves charged with especially dangerous missions. No allowances are made for their relative inexperience, nor their lack of bionics and power armour. Such a violent trial by fire takes its toll, and many scouts do not live to attain the rank of battle brother, yet those who do are tempered through war into something both less and more than the mere men they once were. An ancient order. One of the 
many anachronisms exhibited by the Iron Hands is their continued use of the rank of Iron Father. The first individuals to bear this title were not of the Legion at all, but were instead engineer mystics who maintained the Dark Age machineries of the Medusan clans. These original Iron Fathers wielded considerable influence thanks to their vital contribution to life on Medusa and enjoyed positions in the hierarchy of each clan. When Ferris Manus forcibly introduced his legion to the world they would call home, the rank of Iron Father was adopted by those battle brothers whose duty was the care of the Iron Hand's weapons, vehicles and armaments. Though the title has remained constant over the millennia, its meaning continued to change after the Iron Council's formation. By the dawning of M41, it had come to be an honorific, an additional title awarded to the esteemed individuals who were voted into the ranks of the Iron Council. Any battle brother of rank within the Iron Hands can become an Iron Father, from mighty Iron Captains, Iron Chaplains and Librarians to apothecaries and veteran sergeants. Historically, though, the most common recipients of this honour have been the Tech Marines and the Masters of the Forge, the Iron Hands warriors whose own duties echo those of the Iron Fathers of old. Every clan company must always have at least one Iron Father amongst its ranks, and most will have more, and the word of these individuals will often be heeded by their battle brothers even over that of higher-ranking officers who are not themselves members of the Iron Council. When the Iron Council was first convened in the wake of Ferris Manus's death, the Iron Council chose as their venue a mighty armoured vault deep below the surface of Medusa. The site was large enough to accommodate their number, as well as being exceptionally defensible. The chapter could not, after all, risk further harm befalling those who would lead it. They have met in this same chamber, known as the Eye of Medusa, ever since. The council must always number precisely 41 Iron Fathers, one for each of the planet's infamous Iron Peaks. Each representative is required to possess sufficient neural augmentics that they can communicate using binary cant and new spheric data blurts, uh, plugging themselves into their towering iron thrones with spinal plugs and cranial taps. Though this allows huge amounts of debate to take place in a short space of time, not to mention private communications and secret deals beyond counting, all motions and decrees must be read out loud in Old Medusan, amongst great ceremony and inscribed onto tablets of iron glass in the sight of all. Voting is conducted by delegates dropping ingots into pneumotubes in the arms of their thrones. A silver ingot indicates the voting party is in agreement with the motion proposed, while a bronze ingot indicates the opposite. All such votes are anonymous, the ingots falling from shrouded dispensers into their tubes and being swept into the centre of the chamber, where they fall like metal rain onto the device known as the Scales of Logic. Only in such a vote can the Iron Council appoint a single Iron Father as their chapter's war leader, and then never for more than one year at a time, though the same Iron Father may have his appointment re-ratified in the following year. This extremely heavy use of technology is different to most other chapters of the Astartes, and runs through their entire internal culture. 
The warships of the Iron Hands, for example, are significantly more complex than those of most other chapters. They mount exceptionally high-yield weaponry powered by castigators class generators. They are sheathed in dense envelopes of auto-sanctified void shields and boast machine spirits capable of effecting their own repairs, not to mention directing combat operations independent of their crews. Yet arguably, the chapter's most valuable and potentially controversial devices are their simulus chambers. Standing in humming banks along the walls of the ship's conditioning decks, each simulus chamber comprises a harness throne, similar to those found in drop pods, lit with flickering blue electro-candles and recessed into an ornately frescoed alcove. When a battle brother is strapped into the chamber's throne, neural plugs engage at the base of the spine and plunge the user into a trance-like state in which massive quantities of data can be inloaded or excluded. The battle brother's mind can be stimulated to provide artificial combat scenarios or conduct super-efficient debriefs. Further subconscious strategic protocols can be uploaded to prepare the Space Marine for any eventuality it has been predicted that he may face in the field. Some clan companies make greater use of these devices than others, Clan Garsak in particular being renowned for performing every mission briefing and war council purely by simulus communion. The Iron Hands make extensive use of bionics and augmentics, far more so than other chapters. Their vehicle crews plug directly into their tanks using mind interface uplinks, similar to those found in Titans, kneeling in direct communion with the machine spirits that serve them. Where many chapters employ serfs or thralls, the Iron Hands use a vast range of servitors, from bulky units charged with carrying and supplying ammunition to dexterous and spindle-limbed cyborgs whose duty is to effect repairs to the tangled inner workings of the Iron Hands spacecraft. Even the apothecarians aboard the Iron Hands fleet have the look of machine shops. Great racks of augmented limbs, organs and systems hang from their walls ready for implantation while apothecaries and tech marines combine their talents in order to restore their patients' bodies to optimum efficiency and strength. While the Iron Hands use skull studs to denote long service in the same manner as other chapters, in recent years greater value has been placed upon the strange augmentic known as the Forge Chain, taking the form of a series of augmentic vertebrae, each linked to... The next, by complex strands of neural arrays, the forge chain quite literally puts steel in each battle brother's spine. Each new vertebrae torn loose and replaced represents the Iron Hand's acceptance into another clan company. Each company forge their own links from their own chosen materials, the better to reinforce the recipient's new allegiance. Dorvak, for example, use unadorned steel to form the first vertebrae for each of their newly blooded scouts. Clan Sorgol's vertebrae is formed from a finely tooled galvanite alloy, while that of Clan Company Rorkin is black sigillanium, veined with theldrite circuitry. It is said that the forge chain serves to remind its owner of the bonds that bind the chapter together, 
and the unbreakable strength they gain through unity. Yet, uh, there are those who believe its true purpose is to echo the chains that Ferris Manus first bound around the fiery hearts of the Iron Hands, and that it serves as a reminder to all that true strength lies in restraint. The following is a timeline of events from M30 up to the Great Scouring. Well, as far as we can determine, history being a bit of a miasma of truth. The Age of Ferris. The Iron Hands Legion, named in some records of this time as the Stormwalkers, are committed en masse to the extermination of the Orcs of the Crooked Claw. The Legion that will one day become the Iron Hands prove their merciless dedication to decisive and direct action by utilising a strategy known as the Hammer and the Storm. Luckless Imperial Army regiments are used as a lure, drawing the majority of the Orcs into a single mighty engagement. Once their foes are fully committed, the Iron Hands strike with everything they have, their assault turning the battlefield into a meat grinder that lasts for days on end. The Rise of the Gorgon Ferris Manus, the Primarch of the Iron Hands, is discovered amid the post-industrial ruins of Medusa. Named the Gorgon, after a terrifying beast of local folklore, he establishes himself as the cold and unforgiving god-king of the Medusan clans. Soon enough, he does the same with his legion, forcibly integrating them with the peoples of his adoptive homeworld and reforging the Iron Hands in his own image. Strength through iron. The Iron Hands Legion win themselves a reputation as cold, merciless conquerors. They are a blunt instrument of lethal intent to be wielded by the commanders of the crusading forces and are pivotal in a number of major engagements during the Great Crusade. During this time, Ferris Manus's doctrines of extreme efficiency and strength above all come to the fore, and the first instances are recorded of Iron Hands Battle Brothers undergoing voluntary cybernetic augmentation to improve and strengthen the machines that are their bodies. It is said that the Primarch finds this practice disquieting, but permits it to continue nonetheless. The Fall of Gardenelle Ultramarine forces are mired in a brutal war of attrition in the Gardenelle system. The legions of Ferris, Manus and Fulgrim, by now sworn brothers and close allies, arrive to assist Gilliman's sons. The war that follows is apocalyptic in its brutality, and the warlords of Gardenelle are crushed without mercy. Heresy declared. Horus reveals his treachery and plunges the nascent Imperium into a civil war more bloody and vast in scale than anything humanity has faced since the darkness of old night. At the outset of hostilities, the bulk of the Iron Hands Legion comprises the 52nd Expeditionary Fleet, though many smaller fragments of the Legion's strength are engaged with other Imperial assets elsewhere across the galaxy. M31, The Age of Sorrow When news of the rebellion reaches Ferris Manus, he is overwhelmed by a fury that is frightening to behold, even for his own warriors. The Primarch's wellspring of wrath bubbles to the surface, overriding the fetters of cold logic and self-restraint that have served him well for so long. In his rage, he races ahead of his legion to Istvan V, accompanied only by his chosen elite from Clan Averni. He arrives in time to join a mighty force of supposedly loyal Adeptus Astartes as they launch their attack against Horus and his traitors. Istvan V, Drop Sight Massacre. 
Now, after the Iron Warriors, Night Lords, and Word Bearers reveal themselves to be traitors in league with Horus, the Loyalist Space Marine forces are outnumbered, surrounded, and brutally massacred. Ferris Manus, forging ahead into battle despite the odds and against the urgings of the other Loyalist Legions, is slain in battle with Fulgrim of the Empress Children. Manus's Averni elite are all but wiped out during the battle, and great swathes of the pursuing Iron Hands forces are subsequently annihilated as they rush headlong into ambushes above the planet. A broken legion. The fractured Iron Hands Legion, reduced to a shadow of its former strength, reels from the monstrous blow dealt to them. Terrible scars are left upon the Legion's collective soul, and many among their number remain in denial about the death of their Primarch. The Iron Council. A gathering of clans and Iron Fathers on Medusa forms a new council to rule the Iron Hands now that the Primarch is lost. It is decided that no single individual will ever rule over the Iron Hands again. The newly formed Iron Council concentrate their efforts on replenishing the strength of their shattered legion, and though the Iron Hands score numerous peripheral victories during the heresy, they are far from the truly pivotal battles. Dark tales proliferate from this time of Iron Hands factions rebelling altogether or turning to forbidden secrets of techno-heresy that are later concealed and denied. The Iron path. In the wake of the heresy, the period known as the Scouring begins as the traitors flee imperial justice. Iron Hand's forces are drawn together on Medusa for the conclave known as the Tempering. This great council sets the Legion's feet on a path that it will follow, for better or worse, for the next 10,000 years. The Steel Endures. I thought it was iron. For ten millennia since the heresy's end, the Iron Hands have stood strong in the face of a hostile galaxy. However, the long, bloody years took their toll. In a war where the price of failure was racial annihilation, logic provided proof that no measure could be considered too extreme. Victory, at all costs, carried a price of its own, one that might yet prove insupportable. In the wake of the Horus heresy, the Imperium was a dismal shattered thing. As the beauty and grandeur of the Imperial Palace had been burned black in the fires of betrayal, so great swathes of the Emperor's star-spanning realm had suffered a similar fate. The master of mankind was a broken husk, and his dream of unity erased forever. Yet for all this, the Imperium retained might enough to exact a bloody revenge upon its many foes. There could be no forgiveness for the crimes of the traitors. Those who now ruled in the Emperor's name had neither the ability nor the desire to prevent a war of reciprocity. So began the time known in the histories of the Imperium as the Scouring. This was a period of monumental violence, of confusion and darkness. Though the newly founded Inquisition fought to root out corruption and expose wrongdoers to the cold light of imperial justice, the galaxy's vast scope and dark, shadowed reaches worked against them. With new betrayals and cries for vengeance emerging daily, a great many bloody-handed deeds went unseen. The ravaged Space Marine Legions were no exception to this, with many striving to cover up their own misdemeanours or extract their pound of flesh from those who had wronged them. The Dark Angels, the Space Wolves, even the Ultramarines all followed their own agendas as the wars of the Scouring gathered pace. The Iron Hands were no exception. 
By the beginning of the 31st millennium, the Iron Council was fully established as the Iron Hand's ruling body. It now fell to them to direct the fate of their brothers and to consider their legion's greater purpose and responsibilities. While many Imperial factions bade for blood and rushed to vent their fury upon those who had betrayed them, the Iron Hands gathered their strength on Medusa and convened the entire Iron Council in a conclave that would be known forever as the Tempering. It went without saying that vengeance would be their first and greatest motivator, for their legion had suffered more than any other during the bloodbath of the heresy. Yet anger could not be allowed to rule, for by following such a path the mistakes of the Primarch would be repeated. Instead, the Iron Hands would have to calculate the most logical, measured course of action and follow it without remorse or diversion. The debate ran long, days turning to weeks as all possible theories, doctrines and philosophies were discussed and dissected to an obsessive degree. Occasional outbursts of frustration or angry recriminations punctuated the discussion, each being met with universal disapproval and swift repression. The Primarch had bound the Iron Hand's wellspring of wrath in chains of discipline and expectation, and though his own emotions might have slipped their leash at the end, the Iron Hands could little afford to allow the same thing to happen to them. Eventually, as the 86th Medusan Day Cycle came to a close, the rulings of the Iron Council were announced and put into immediate effect. The Iron Fathers of the Council had determined that it was the human race itself that was to blame for the heresy. For them, the War Master's Rebellion had gained such traction only because the Space Marine Legions, the Primarchs, and even the Emperor himself were unable to eliminate human inconsistency from their decisions. Jealousy, avarice, fear, all were separating sores upon the human soul that must be seared clean in the fires of war. Trust, too, had played its part, for it was the Primarch's trust in one another that had left the Imperium open to the abuses it had suffered. Those guilty of such weaknesses, the traitors and renegades who had fallen into rebellion, could not be allowed to spread their corruption to others. Humanity must be purged of its flaws in a war unending, lest that same weakness be allowed to take root once more. So it was that the Iron Hands determined their guiding mission. They would extract payment for the wrongs done to them, but with a measured ruthlessness. In their every thought and deed, they would seek out weakness and destroy it, replacing it with the machine-like fortitude that they so venerated. The clan companies took ship that night, forged into unstoppable strike forces, and distributed against the most appropriate foes as determined by pure logic. This was the beginning of a bloody campaign that would see the Iron Hands tested to the very limits of their endurance. Unbeknownst to the wider Imperium, the Tempering also played host to several Adeptus Mechanicus envoys. With their Primarch lost, the Iron Fathers sought new strength to add to their own. The Priesthood of Mars and their Titan legions had long fought beside the Iron Hands during the days of the Great Crusade and the Heresy alike, forging ever stronger bonds as they did so. In their devotees of the Omnisire, the Iron Hands saw a mirror of their own doctrine of steel over flesh, a reliable ally who had not fall prey to hubris and pride as had the preening braggarts of the Emperor's children. 
the Iron Council thus deemed it logical to offer the Adeptus Mechanicus closer military ties than ever before. In exchange for the Iron Hand's alliance and protection, the Martian priesthood would grant them unprecedented access to the sacred mysteries of the Omnissiah, augmenting their tech marines' knowledge far beyond that possessed by their counterparts in the other legions of the Adeptus Astartes. By the tempering's end, the voice of Mars would be ratified as an official position upon the Iron Council itself and would be occupied ever more by a triad of senior tech adepts. War unending. In the wake of the decrees laid down during the tempering and the division of the second founding, Clan Company Rorkin were ever at the forefront of the Iron Hand's wars. Their reputation for aggression stemmed from the days when Clan Rorkin of old had plied the Medusan wastes as piratical raiders. The next 10,000 years would see Clan Rorkin plunged into the fires of war more than any other company. However, several of these bloody campaigns formed ominous portents of things to come. In the last years of M31, Clan Rorkin was deployed wholesale onto the Omatrican Reach. Supported by elements of clan companies Averni and Dorvok, and led by a cabal of no fewer than four Iron Fathers, this massive force was charged with crushing the rebellious factions that had spread throughout the system. What had begun as a workers' uprising on the factory moon of Tholsh had spread through the Reach like wildfire, swiftly taking on alarming overtones of prescribed worship and fanaticism. Yet when the Iron Hands translated from the warp to begin their war, they found that their foe was cunning enough to evade open battle. Rather than full-scale armed rebellions, the cults were remaining well underground. They used powerful psychers to communicate with one another and to influence the governors of the world they had infested. Initially, Iron Captain Morlus commanded his forces to strike with surgical precision. The scouts of Clan Dorvok were deployed on key worlds throughout the Reach, sweeping mile by mile with machine-like patience in their search for cultist cells. As each such canker was located, teleport attacks and drop pod assaults were used to bring massive forces to bear and exterminate it completely. Yet almost a year of this approach seemed to bring the Iron Hands no closer to victory. Uh, the foe's numbers still unguessable. Repeatedly, the bravest cultists used makeshift anti-orbital missiles to strike at Clan Company Rorkin's ships, each attack causing little damage, but serving to goad the Iron Hand's buried anger a little closer to the surface. With no clear enemy to confront en masse, the majority of Clan Rorkin could do little but train, run drills and wait for an opportunity to deploy. Matters came to a head when, on the swamp-choked world of Pullus, Several corrupt shrines were discovered by Clan Dorvok's scouts. These foul, fleshy monuments gave praise to a Slaneshi demon, named by its devoted worshippers as the Sapphire King. From that moment, the entire character of the war in the Omatrican Reach changed. The Iron Fathers met in conclave and determined that, by the core tenets of their chapter and according to the decrees of the tempering, they had no choice but to declare the entire populace of the Reach guilty of the same brand of perversion that had twisted Fulgrim's legion against them during the heresy. That the vast majority of the Reach's populace were not deemed directly responsible was neither here nor there. These supposed innocents had allowed a foul cancer to take root in their midst and must be punished accordingly. With a single command, 
the Iron Fathers unleashed the full might of their strike force against the worlds of the Reach. In a war of extermination that took six years to conclude, the Iron Hands cleansed the taint of Slanesh from the Omatrican Reach by the expedient of system-wide genocide. It was, after all, the most direct method of ensuring success. Faultless service. As the centuries wore on, the Iron Hands were instrumental time and again in protecting the interests of the Imperium. If their conduct became ever less humane, few would have deemed their callous conduct to be a fault. During M34, the horrific phenomenon known as the Pale Wasting swept into the galaxy. Great swarms of refugees and intergalactic flotsam fleeing before its miasmic grasp. Rorkin were among several clan companies who sent forces at the request of Mars to ensure compliance with the quarantine cordon around the forge world of Gramacus Beta. For long months, the Iron Hand strike cruisers hung in space, silent sentinels watching for any who might attempt to flee ahead of the wasting and thus endanger the forge world or its output. Warriors of Rorkan, Kargul and Harmek performed brutal boarding actions against the craft of Orc raiders and Eldar pirates alike, sweeping them deck by deck with Balta and Blade. As each ship was cleared, the corpses of their luckless inhabitants were catalogued, piled in heaps and burned. The ships themselves were scuttled before being redirected into the heart of Gower X24, the nearest star. None remarked upon the fact that the same treatment was meted out upon the luckless Yomathi 26th Imperial Guard. An entire army group, the Yomathi, had been charged with holding the Forox Corridor. After misinterpreting their garbled orders, the Yomathi had retreated to join the cordon around Gramacus Beta. When their hails and their panicked pleas went unanswered by the Iron Hand ships, the Yamathi attempted to fight, but they were caught while still translating from the warp. Their ships were bracketed by fire patterns so efficient that thousands of men died without ever knowing who had killed them. For the remainder, there was nothing but the terrified wait aboard crippled ships, followed by a shockingly violent death under the guns of Iron Hand's boarding parties. There could be no mercy for men who failed to remain at their posts, and so the Iron Hands gave them none. During the dark days of the Moira Schism, in M35, great swathes of the Adeptus Mechanicus and their closest allies were riven with internal rebellion. The Iron Hands were not immune to this time of strife. Clan Rorkin was notable during this time of conflict for holding staunchly to their chapter's core beliefs. Under the influence of Iron Chaplain Fornius and Iron Captain Hacken, they were one of the only clan companies to have not a single battle brother become corrupted by the pernicious Moira Doctrine. Indeed, they deployed several squadrons of vindicators and predators against the rebellious cataphracti forces during the Battle of Kamjada. That these Adeptus Mechanicus rebels were supported by a small cadre of warriors from Clan Borgos would form a point of bitter contention between the two clan companies for many centuries to come. In M37, the Iron Council made show of dispatching a huge force uh, to aid in battle against the renegade disciples of the Blind King. Clan Rorkin and no fewer than four other clan companies took the field. In a series of bloody battles, their vast strike force blunted a dozen uprisings on as many worlds. At Pelos, they even hurled back the turncoat titans of the Legio Coventia with a vast armoured phalanx. 
As the war ground on, the Iron Hands were lauded as heroes by Segmentum Command and the Martian priesthood alike. However, this overt display of force concealed many months of doctrinal wrangling within the Iron Council itself, some of whom had argued relentlessly that the renegade tech priests of the Occlusiad, who believed the infinitely corruptible and imperfect human race to be an affront to the Omnisire, might not be entirely in the wrong. Clan Rorkin's current Ironfather, the venerable tech marine Damos, was amongst the loudest voices in shouting down these pernicious whispers for the madness they were. Rorkan's forces found themselves in the forefront of the conflict that followed, yet it was under Damos's patronage that, less than 200 years later, Clan Rorkin suffered one of their greatest defeats. In the latter years of M40, after a string of brutal battles in the Mimerdia system against the Hawks of Wah Skull Smasher, Clan Rorkan received a distress call from the Mars-class frigate Endymion, deep in the neighbouring Corladian Gulf. This cry for help reported an attack by traitors identified as the Emperor's children, and, more galling still, made mention of fanatical broadcasts claiming the souls of the ship's crew in the name of the Sapphire King. Iron Captain Maclon and Tech Marine Damos were quick to respond, leaving a token force to keep watch for the Orcs and taking a complement of more than half of the clan's battle brothers in search of the traitors. The Iron Hand Strike Force reached the last known coordinates of the Endymion to find the craft gone. However, localised scans quickly revealed a tangle of warp signatures leading to the nearby death world of Scarbos. Led by Maclon and Damos, the warriors of Clan Rorcan made planetfall amid Scarvus's jagged bone jungles. Thunderhawks descended to disgorge a sizable armoured strike force. Their rumbling battle tanks and transports crunched through vast drifts of bone meal and ploughed down calcified groves amid lashing squalls of flayer hail, following the warp signatures to their sources. Even as the vast blazing carcass of the Andymion appeared on the horizon, sprawled and broken at the end of a twenty-mile trench, the traitors struck. Sonic weapons howled over the roar of engines, armoured plates buckled and tracks sheared as oscillating waves of force tore them apart. Clamrol Khan fought back hard, overlapping fields of fire, ensuring the optimum kill ratio as the traitors advanced. Gaudily coloured figures in freakish armour were blown apart by ruby lances of energy and thudding barrages of mass-reactive shells. Bolters roared, and grav-guns pounded the bone jungle flat. Yet the Emperor's children outnumbered the Iron Hands several times over, and their well-executed ambush had lent them the element of surprise. Gradually, the tanks and warriors of Clan Rorkin were torn apart by lethal sonic bombardments, fireballs blooming and bone trunks lit with the dancing light of white-hot fires. Only a fraction of Maclon and Darmus's forces escaped the ambush and Scarvus alive. Both of Rorcan's long-serving Ironfathers had been lost in the disastrous battle, refusing to order the retreat even though they faced impossible odds. Worse still, while the Iron Hand's attention had been drawn away by the servants of the Sapphire King, the Orcs had returned to Marmedia in an even greater number, as though they had known the system's defenders would be elsewhere. The ensuing carnage was a blow to the reputation of the Iron Hands as a whole. 
for a chapter whose brethren chose to abandon their posts in order to chase old vendettas must be carefully watched. Clan Company Rokan, their numbers much reduced and their battle brothers facing the strictest censure, were placed under the command of the staunchly conservative Iron Father Christos, a tech marine of the old guard who was charged with ensuring no traces of Maclon or Darmus's shortcomings remained. As the 41st millennium dawned, Clan Company Rokan was far from their chapter's favourite, yet still darker days lay ahead. Slaughter on Dawnbreak For Clan Company Rokan, the first years of Christos's command were a brutal grind. The losses they had suffered on Scarvos were steadily replenished with reserves from Clan Companies Borgos and Morlag, bringing Rokan back toward full battle readiness. Yet it was not the Clan Company's numerical strength that was in question. Iron Father Christos was charged with running a full program of analytical redemption. Working from Rokan's command structure downward, Christos, a tech marine of some 180 years and a long-standing Iron Father, embodied the inhumanity that so many of his chapter had now embraced. A looming warrior engineer whose armour concealed a body more than 80% augmentic, Christos had made numerous pilgrimages to the forges of Mars during his life. He was a creature of the Omnisire's doctrines through and through, seemingly bereft of emotion, compassion or empathy. On his recommendation, the fallen Iron Captain Maclon was replaced by the relentlessly logical Iron Captain Gravar, who immediately instigated a regime of additional psycho-conditioning throughout Clan Rokan. Squad by squad, the Clan Company's battle brothers marched to the conditioning decks, there to submit to long, painful months of cerebral recohesion. This was intended to smother any lingering traces of emotional attachment to the Company's previous Iron Fathers and their questionable methods. Preparatory missions were undertaken. The Clan Company tested methodically, component by component, to ensure no signs of weakness remained. Decades passed in minor engagements and support duties before Iron Captain Gravere and his tech marine comrade were satisfied with the battle readiness of their clan company. Christos returned to the Iron Council and reported Rorcan once again ready for frontline combat operations. Amid a general rumble of approval from his peers, Christos was charged with a new mission that would serve to field-test Clan Rokan's iron-hard discipline and merciless conditioning. The Voice of Mars had advised the Iron Council of a distress call received by an Adeptus Mechanicus listening post, a signal that had proved most interesting. Some weeks later, a combined force of battle brothers from Clan Rokan, Avani, Davok and Garsak burst from the warp into the Abrasian system. Anhan's tactical doctrine espouses the deployment of overwhelming strength in all things. The force calculated appropriate for the mission at hand was thus sufficient to crush a star system beneath its armoured tread. As the Iron Hand's augurs came online, they detected hails from other Imperial forces, namely the Katachan 17th Army Group, already arrayed on and around the massive garden world of Dawnbreak. The Katachans had been deployed some months earlier, responding to the same astropathic message from the world's noble inhabitants that had reached the Adeptus Mechanicus. 
For several hundred years, Dawnbreak had been cultivated as a retreat for those privileged few among the Administratum and Ministorum given permission to settle there. Silver city spires climbed into the heavens, rising from amid a lush arboreal ocean that covered two-thirds of the planet's surface. Yet the sculpted shrine gardens and glittering retreats of Dawnbreak had come under sudden violent attack from Xenos raiders identified as the Eldar craft world of Alatok. The attack had come after labour teams excavating a site for a new system of ornamental cave gardens had discovered strange machineries buried dormant beneath the planet's crust. How the Eldar could have known this, or why it might goad them to such violence, was beyond the planet's governor. Nonetheless, the Eldar had come, striking first at the dig site and then working outward, in what appeared to be a systematic purge of human life. The Catachans had been sent by Segmentum Command to rescue the noble worthies who called Dawnbreak their home. Yet, far from disappearing like smoke, as the Eldar are wont to do, the arrival of the Catachan forces only seemed to spur the foe to greater efforts. Vast swathes of Dawnbreak's forests had burned, crystalline domes and looming arc templums falling in fire and ruin, and the Catachans in turn had called for help. The Iron Hands moved in system, swiftly closing on Dawnbreak and adopting optimal orbital positioning. They released swarms of clicking, buzzing servo skulls into the upper atmosphere, the macabre servitors spreading across the globe to perform strategic divinations and weave a sensor tapestry of force dispositions and strategic movements. Responding to Catachan General Dortmund's hails, with only the most perfunctory code bursts, the Strike Force's Ironfathers held a hollow conclave to determine their strategy. They had detected no Xenos craft in orbit, though they did not discount the possibility of such ships lurking somewhere beyond sensor range. For the time being, however, the Eldar possessed nothing in the way of orbital support. Their ground forces, meanwhile, seemed to be well dispersed. Formed into highly mobile airborne battle groups, they were performing a graceful dance of destruction as they picked off one human enclave after another with near impunity. The Imperial Guard had concentrated their forces around the greatest of these sites, adopting a typical static defence and attempting to evacuate outlying civilian elements to these supposed saviour zones. None of this held any interest for Christos or his comrades. Chasing shadows and smoke through the vast forests of Dawnbreak was not the way the Iron Hands made war, while if the Imperial Guard and civilian forces were unable to save themselves then they did not deserve the Iron Hand's assistance anyway. The Iron Fathers had eyes only for the dig site and the substantial Eldar forces that held it. Here was the discovery that had prompted the attack on Dawnbreak, and here the Iron Hands would strike. The midday sun filtered down through rolling banks of smoke, dappling the churned mud and wrecked machinery of the dig site with drifting patterns as the Iron Hands launched their attack. The birds fell suddenly silent amid the trees, and bands of blue-armoured Eldar sentries snapped their gaze skyward. A second later, the clouds tore open. The watery rays of the sun were replaced by screaming columns of devastating laser energy and plummeting bombardment cannon shells. Great swathes of forest were blasted to ash in an instant, exploding in monstrous eruptions of tumbling earth, pulped undergrowth and mangled bodies. 
As the suppression fire rolled steadily outwards from the dig site, the blazing contrails of drop pods filled the skies. The Iron Hand's aircraft wove between them, their calculated flight paths carrying them through the plummeting ordnance and drop craft with perfect synchronicity. Eldar warriors dashed for cover amid the ruined buildings dotting the site or fell back into the yawning crater at its heart as the black hull drop pod slammed down and began to disgorge squad after squad of armoured battle brothers. Clan Rorkan had the lead, stepping from their harnesses with measured strides and forming cold, efficient ranks. As they initiated their lockstep advance, Eldar fire began to lash out at them from all around, beams of white light and hissing shuriken battering the marines' armour. Here and there, Battle Brothers stumbled to the ground or were vaporised by energy blasts, yet Clan Rorkan's warriors advanced with an inexorable fearless tread, loosing the furious thunder of their guns as they did so. Fragile Xenos bodies exploded in bursts of blood and gore, while a screaming squadron of jet bikes was punched from the sky by the relentless storm of fire amid blossoms of flame and sparks. As the warriors of Clan Rokan pushed forward, their drop pods slammed down amid their lines, disgorging roaring dreadnoughts that swiftly added their massive firepower to the fusillade. Elsewhere, Thunderhawk gunships and transporters disgorged squadrons of black-armoured battle tanks, their engines gunning furiously as they surged toward the foe. The Eldar fought back with everything they had the skimming grav tanks rising from the dig crater to direct lethal volleys of fire into the advancing space marines. Long-barreled laser cannons and strange crystalline guns spat death, blowing more iron hands off their feet. The dreadnought that had once been Iron Chaplain Furnius reeled as a beam of energy punched through his sarcophagus and crippled his servo motors. Yet even as the mighty ancient fought to reroute motive power past his damaged systems, he felt the cold presence of strange machine spirits questing through his metal body, repairing damage and blessing him once more with the power to walk. As he strode forward with fresh vigour. Furnius detected the presence of Iron Father Christos nearby, the iron stone mag clamped around his neck. A potent relic of the chapter, this silvered pendant was reputedly haunted by ancient and powerful machine spirits, capable of bolstering the failing strength of the machines around them. Christos advanced amid a phalanx of land raiders and predators that the enemy's fire proved unable to stop. Around Christos and his lumbering servitor bodyguards, the tanks of Clan Rorkan soaked up blasts of coruscating energy and hammering beams of light, their tracks churning on and their guns continuing to roar regardless. Gaping rents were torn in the vehicle's armour, weapon systems were crippled and drives burst into flame. Each time, though, the tanks lurched to life once more before the eyes of the increasingly desperate Eldar. Didn't see that one coming, did they? Damage that would have overcome even the sophisticated machine spirits of the Iron Hands repaired by the Iron Stone's influence. Storms of psychic lightning leapt from the hands of Eldar Seers, now emerging from the crater into the very teeth of Clan Rokan's assault. Around them, Aspect warriors charged forward in brightly patterned warplate. 
At the same time, risking the fury of the ongoing bombardment as they bounded through the trees, a pair of towering wraith knights took to the field, surrounding the warriors of the Iron Hands. Their guns carved bloody furrows through Clan Rorcan's lines. Yet even this was not enough. Storm Raven gunships struck from the smoke, missiles shrieking from their wings to explode against the Wraith Knight's statuesque bodies, while the Terminators of Clan Averne charged toward them, with Thunderhammers held high. As the battle raged to the rear, Iron Father Christos and Iron Captain Gravar led a final push on the crater. Psychic lightning lashed at Gravar as he charged toward the Eldar Witches. The energy dancing across his augmented limbs and crackling over steel-plated skull. With a roar of defiance, he kept going, even as his skin crisped and curled like parchment, swinging his silvered blade in a mighty arc and sending the head of the foremost seer tumbling away over the lip of the crater. A cry of dismay went up from the Eldar at this sight, swiftly drowned out once more by the thunder of Clan Rorcan's bulk guns. One by one, the broken corpses of the Eldar warriors were sent tumbling into the pit, and the sound of gunfire was replaced by the rumbling track and marching feet as the Iron Hands consolidated their hold on their true objective with blank efficiency. In the wake of the Iron Hands' assault, the war for Dawnbreak continued to wage. The Eldar had lost their leader and their purpose, yet they dared not to strike at the massive concentration of Iron Hands who held the dig site. However, outraged calls for assistance from the Katachan soldiery continued to fall on deaf ears as the Iron Fathers went about their business. For long days, patrols of iron hands swept the broken wasteland that surrounded the dig site, armoured columns that travelled in force and crushed any foe they encountered. Though the Eldar made several more attempts to dislodge the space marines, these attacks lacked for numbers and conviction. They were swiftly crushed. Meanwhile, under the icy glare of massive lumen fonts, heavy-duty servitors worked tirelessly, they expanded upon the excavation started by the civilian dig teams, widening the shafts and ponderously dragging their prize to the surface, one segment at a time. Thunderhawk transporters ferried shrouded cargoes into space, working day and night to complete their task. In all this time, however, the Iron Hands never strayed from the dig site. The Catachan's calls for aid went unanswered. Civilian voxhales were ignored. The Iron Fathers, who led the expedition, had no interest in aiding their supposed allies and wasted neither time or resource intervening in their plight. As the Catachan's began to realise these space marines were not quite the reinforcements they had hoped for, morale in the ranks plunged. The Eldar were still performing hit-and-run attacks across the planet, instigating savage battles that now had the character of revenge attacks. Suddenly, one morning, the Iron Hands were simply gone. General Dortmund raged over the Voxlink as recovery craft descended to ferry the mighty Iron Hands force back to orbit, and the Space Marine fleet made ready to depart. Even when a fleet suspected to be made up of Eldar ships appeared on out-system augers, coming to rescue their remaining comrades and avenge their leader's death, no doubt, the Iron Hands proceeded regardless, and the Katachan shouts turned to desperate pleas for rescue. As the Iron Hands ships burned retros and set a course for home, Dortmund received a single Vox response from Iron Captain Gravere. If you are strong, you will survive. If you are weak, you will not. Fight hard, General, and prove your worth. Ortark Yeldrin of Craftworld Alatok, 
strode across the scorched earth of the battlefield. His every movement speaking of the anger he felt. Eldar bodies were being collected one by one, their precious remains bound for vampire raiders that would return them to orbit. Many had lain for days, left piled in the mud where they had been slain. The spirit stones of some still flickered with life, yet others were disturbingly dark, as dead as the bodies that rotted beneath them. Here and there amid the Eldar fallen lay the shattered carcasses of black-armoured post-human warriors, their chests and throats ripped open by some kind of grotesque surgery. These space marines were not like others Yaldren had encountered. Those had been the red-armoured brethren of the Blood Angels, noble warriors alongside whom the Ortok had briefly fought against a common foe. He had felt, if not respect, then at least a certain warrior kinship with those primitive heroes. These space marines, though, these were a different breed. Lumpen, mechanical arms and legs were much in evidence. Cumbersome prosthetics, which appeared to Yeldren, now but a clumsy encumbrance. These black-armoured savages had left their lesser human allies to die, allowing their ships to be torn apart by the guns of Yaldron's vengeful fleet. None had survived, and the wreckage of the primitive spacecraft was still raining down on the doomed world. The remaining Imperial forces on the ground had been slain in their turn, yet even now Yaldron felt no sense of victory, just aching loss and fury. Farseer Almuth was dead, along with so many of Alatok's brave warriors, and the Autark already knew what he would find when he reached the crater's lip. Some secrets should stay buried, he thought, for much of the galaxy's knowledge was too dangerous to be revealed to lesser, younger races. Yet sure enough, as his gaze swept the deep pit that the humans had dug, Yeldren felt despair pressing on his heart. These black-armoured space marines, whoever or whatever they were, had stolen the old treasures of those who should never be woken. The Battle for Columnus. In the wake of their assault upon Dawnbreak, Clan Company Rorcan once again enjoyed the full faith of the Iron Council. Christos and Grevere had done their work well, it seemed, restoring the purity of logic to Rorcan's warriors. Upon the Dawnbreak expedition's return to Medusa, the recovered Xenos machinery were consigned to vaults deep underground and their fate commented upon no further. Meanwhile, Clan Company Rokan was reinstated to full frontline duties. The decades that followed saw them victorious time and again under the continued leadership of Iron Father Christos and Iron Captain Gravar, now an honoured Iron Father in his own right. It was nearly 200 years after the victory on Dawnbreak that word reached the Iron Council of the plight of Columnus. A venerable forge world on the western fringe of Segmentum Solar Columnus sat directly in the path of a vast orc war. Even now, the Xenos were flowing towards Columnus like a huge wave, depopulating outlying systems and sweeping the scattered Imperial defenders before them like flotsam on the tide. The Forge World's senior magi had requested immediate aid, and the Iron Hands would give it. Less than a month after the distress call had been received, a mighty fleet of black-hulled ships hove into orbit above Columnus, each bearing the white gauntlet of the Iron Hands upon its flanks. Over a third of the chapter's strength had been deployed. No fewer than ten Iron Fathers led this expedition, commanding a force that included the whole of clans Rorkan and Garsak, as well as representative forces from almost every other clan company. As the Iron Hand's helm servitors established Vox links with the defenders on Columnus, 
The Iron Hands learned that they would be fighting in good company. The entirety of the Legio Farax had been assembled, the Iron Wolves, boasting over thirty titans of varying classes. Phalanx upon phalanx of Skitari, Cataphracti, an augmented Tech Guard garrisoned the sprawling city-sized fortress factories that dotted Columnus. Dozens of regiments of Imperial Guard tanks, artillery and super-heavy armour had been assembled on the planet's crimson plains. War held the raised superhighways that connected one fortress factory with the next. Countless guns pointed skyward, waiting for the orcs' assault, and the Iron Hands moved quickly to add their own strength. As the orcs' landing sites were likely to be both random and numerous, it was deemed that the Iron Hands' strength must remain as concentrated as was practical. The Iron Fathers thus split their force into three company-sized armies and deployed them to the greatest of the fortress factories, Kemlos, Urdri, and Slartav. Yet as the tanks of Clan Rokan roared up the highway towards Urdri, Christos and Grevere were to receive disturbing news. The Iron Hands were not the only space marines present in defence of Columnus. As the warriors of Clan Rokan began moving to their posts within the labyrinthine factory sprawl of Urdri, Shadow Captain Sten of the Raven Guard approached them. Accompanied by his command squad, Sten extended the Iron Hands command as a greeting and offer of brotherhood. He explained that his force had been effecting a fighting retreat before the oncoming orcs to slow their advance, giving the defenders of Columnus time to prepare. Now Sten's men were ready to fight in earnest, and he possessed important information regarding the peculiar strength of the foe. In response, Christos's silence stretched long, growing ever more uncomfortable as his augmetics hissed and whirred. Finally, the tech marine replied, the Raven Guard cannot be relied upon, he announced in buzzing tones. You fight like smoke, drifting away in the slightest breeze. Additionally, orcs are not new foes to the Iron Hands. You know nothing that our battle simulations have not already told us. We will not fight alongside you, Shadow Captain Sten, for it is in all we do as Iron Hands to avoid the fate suffered by our Primarch. The Iron Father and his men swept past the bristling Raven Guard, the crash of their boots receding as they made for the command post. The orcs arrived scant days later, and their fury was a thing to behold. The astropaths had been wailing for hours, many dying in the grip of convulsions so severe that they broke their own necks, or chewed off their own tongues. As each psyker perished, the techadeps of the Colosseum Astropathica simply unlocked another from Stasis storage, Yet the astropaths were dying as fast as they could be plugged back into their thrones. Now, as the orcs' enormous fleet appeared above Columnus, an almighty surge of psionic energy rolled out from amid the greenskin armada. As the bow wave struck home, every single surviving astropath died at once in a blaze of green flame that consumed the Colosseum, leaving nothing but a glowing crater in its wake. Even as the bodies of Columnus's first fallen were blazing in the wreckage, orbital auguries were attempting to calculate the size of the greenskin armada descending upon the planet. The orc ships resembled a meteor storm of incredible density. Rocket-propelled asteroids and tumbling thruster-studded lumps of metal jostled for space with snub-nosed attack ships that belched trails of black smoke into the void as they passed. Plowing through the mass like predatory beasts came slab-sided capital ships, 
each a preposterous tangle of armour and guns. Worst of all, at the fleet's heart loomed a mighty space hulk the size of a small moon. Around it played a weird halo of green lightning alike to a storm in space. This was Wah Zagdagger, and it descended upon Columnus at breakneck speed. The orbital fortresses were the first to feel the orc's wrath. Forge worlds are repositories of the most ancient and deadly technologies, and Columnus's orbitals were equipped with a vast array of weapon systems. Strobing webs of high-powered lasers reached out into the void, cutting through orc ships to dissect them in seconds. Vortex warheads detonated amid tightly packed clusters of green-skinned craft and dragged them into the howling void. Gravity drivers crushed orc ships to scrap or smashed them into one another with deadly force, while vast cycling batteries of missiles and lasers lit the skies of Columnus with their fury. The orcs simply accelerated, charging into the rain of fire. Thousands of attack ships and ramming craft were blown apart, shattering into expanding clouds of fire and spinning debris, yet thousands remained. Having exploited the smaller craft as crude shields, the larger assault craft and cruisers now ploughed forward through the plummeting wreckage and opened up with weapons of their own. A ferocious firestorm tore the heavens from pole to pole. Missiles and explosive munitions filled the diminishing gap between the orbitals and their myriad aggressors. The curtain of fire and debris becoming so dense that it seemed nothing could survive it, yet impossibly, as if driven by some will greater than their own, the orcs came on. Many of the larger asteroids simply ploughed through the incoming fire, their rocky hulls absorbing impacts that would have annihilated more conventional craft. Without slowing, they slammed into the orbital fortresses and ripped them apart. Proud bastions that had hung in space for millennia, fragmented like shattered glass, explosions stitching through them and immolating their doomed garrisons. From the surface of Columnus, it appeared as though the sky had caught fire, the planet's omnipresent smog bank shredding to reveal tumbling, blazing swathes of wreckage falling towards the surface. Amid this rain of metal and fire came the orcs, ploughing their crude ships down through the atmosphere without the slightest pause. All across the planet, defensive batteries and silos opened fire, desperate to destroy the steel rain before it hit. They would not succeed. Columnus writhed like a beast in pain, tumbling agglomerations of wreckage the size of mountains, crashed down upon fortified outposts and massed armies, obliterating all they struck. Swaves of Skitari and Imperial Guardsmen were killed as the blast waves from each impact rolled outward. Super-heavy tanks were flung end over end, while titans reeled and shook like men standing in the path of a gale. Firestorms howled around them, overloading their void shields one by one. It was madness, destruction and death on an unimaginable scale, and in its midst the orc made planetfall. Asteroid ships gouged vast craters from Columnus's arid plains as they struck. Huge scrap metal cruisers burned retros, or else were enfolded in skeins of shimmering green energy that seemed to slow their descent, skidding to a stop at the end of miles-long blazing trenches. Smaller craft fell all around them, skimming low on gravity cushions, lurching to a halt on flaming clouds of jetwash, or simply crashing headlong into the planet's surface at full speed. 
Many orcs were killed upon impact, yet millions remained to spill out from their landing sites onto Colomnus's burning surface. Now the war began in earnest. As the green-skinned Space Hulk settled into low orbit and began to rain fire and drop craft onto Colomnus's surface, the Iron Hand's fleet moved to engage, dwarfed by their monstrous foe yet unwilling to show a moment's weakness. Around them, Mechanicus war barges and Imperial Navy battleships swept forward, adding their ordnance to the Iron Hand's own and lighting the skies with a fresh storm of fire. On the surface, meanwhile, the Iron Hands found themselves with no shortage of foes to engage. The fortress factories had been protected from the worst of the devastating bombardment by humming banks of void shields, yet elsewhere, the Forge World's defenders had been horribly mauled. Whole regiments had been obliterated in moments, major forge complexes swept from the map or buried in blazing wreckage. The world's new sphere was clogged with cracking static and radioactive interference. Yet cautious estimates by the senior Columnite Technomagi suggested that as much as 40% of the world's defensive strength had been lost at a stroke, wiped out or left so shattered and cut off as to be as good as dead. Now the plains were awash with Xenos, who moved with a single purpose, vast tides making straight for the fortress factories and evidencing none of the typical infighting that might be expected from barbaric and fractious orcs. What such a thing could mean, the Magi could not guess. Superior systems meant the Iron Fathers had retained contact with one another, where the other defenders had not, and they swiftly confirmed that all three primary fortress factories were within hours of being besieged. Already, there were isolated warbands of greenskins loose within Chemlos, and millions more were on their way. It was agreed that, with so many of the lesser defenders removed from the equation, even the might of the Iron Hands and Titans present on Columnus could not hope to face the Greenskins out in the open. While Iron Father Christos reported that the Raven Guard had departed Erdry in order to harry the advancing orcs and gather survivors, the Iron Hands saw no valid reason to do the same. Thus it was decided the three great fortress factories would be islands against which the orcs would break. All Iron Hands would remain within the bounds of the city and exterminate the Orc forces as they advanced into engagement range. All Imperial assets beyond the walls would be considered lost and no effort wasted in attempting to rescue those too weak to save themselves. Only when the Greenskins had exhausted their strength by hurling wave after wave against the defences would the Iron Hands sally forth and crush what remained of the Greenskin threat. It was a logical, pragmatic course of action, and the Iron Fathers dispersed to prepare their forces. Iron Hand's battle brothers marched to take positions on the fortress factory's walls, or mustered around pre-plotted kill zones, ready to repulse those Xenos who broke through. Squadron upon squadron of black-armoured battle tanks rumbled into position at key intersections, their crews communing directly with their machine spirits and ready for battle. Deep within the towering bastions at each city's heart, chapter servitors lumbered across launch decks and sky shield pads, loading fuel and ordnance into waiting Storm Talon and Storm Raven gunships. Devastators and centurions of Clan Rorcan and Vorgan tuck up positions, synced their minds with their targeting augmetics and readied their weapons for the arrival of the innumerable horde. Servo skulls swarmed above Erdry, 
streaming back what strategic auguries they could. Ironfathers Christos and Grevere watched alongside the other command personnel of Clan Rorcan as patchy images reached them of seas of greenskins flowing toward the city. The invaders were moving up the south and east superhighways and from all directions across the plains. A great mass of rumbling tanks, lumbering walkers and millions of charging infantry that raised dust storms in their wake. Scattered Imperial forces retreated before them, two limping reaver titans of the Legio Pharax backing steadily up the southern highway with their guns thundering. Meanwhile, a ragged column of armour was approaching from the east, fire-blackened raven guard transports hurtling along amid a mishmash of chimeras and Lehman Russ. In both cases, the orcs were close on the defenders' heels, threatening to overrun them at any moment, yet the Iron Hands had set their plans and combat protocols, and they would not deviate. The desperate Imperial forces glanced up at the fortress walls as they pushed towards them, to see only an implacable line of silent black armour topping each. Shields were dropped, gates rattled open, and defensive batteries lit with fire as the warriors... Garrisoning Erdry provided an opening for the Titans and tanks to get into the city, yet none sallied out to their aid. The retreating forces would have to rely on their own strength to reach safety or fall. The Raven Guard and their wards hammered across the plains with orc bikes and buggies nipping at their heels. Greenskin aircraft screamed low overhead to drop bombs amid the fleeing tanks. A rhino erupted in a blossoming fire, cartwheeling end over end as an orc bomb struck it, and the two rearmost Lehman Russ went up in flames as crude energy weapons punched through their armour. Moments later, the surviving tanks were roaring through the gate while curtains of fire from Iron Hands and Tech Guards slaughtered orcs in droves. The Reavers were less fortunate. The venerable Dictat Ferrum was limping badly as it retreated, flames boiling from ragged tears in the armour of both legs. Even as the defenders watched from the walls, roiling green energy gathered above the heads of the advancing orcs like storm clouds. A mighty war cry rose from countless throats, drifting feral and monstrous on the wind. And then the green energy leapt out to halo the Ferrum. The titan's void shields imploded with a hollow thump as ectoplasmic energy roiled around them. And, in a series of rippling explosions, the titan's weapon system and ammunition reserves cooked off. With a thunderous boom, the Dictat Ferrum tumbled backwards, crashing bodily into her sister engine, the Sanctus Absalom. With tremendous force, its balance destroyed the second god machine's warhorn gave a forlorn howl of anguish as it too toppled from the raised highway to crash in ruin upon the plains below. As countless greenskins swarmed across the fallen reavers, gate 764 rumbled closed once more, shutting out orc attackers and imperial stragglers alike. Now the defence of the city proper began. Time and again, surging tides of greenskins charged towards the walls. Crude, firepower, blazing up from the ramshackle tanks that rumbled along in their midst. Each time, the charging greenskins were haloed with crackling green power and refused to retreat no matter their losses. Yet, each time, the rain of fire from the walls slaughtered every last greenskin before they could force a breach. 
Deep within the city, Clan Rokan whirlwinds and hunters raise their weapons to the sky, the former pounding barrages of fire into the orcs beyond the walls, while the latter added their sky spear missiles to the churning curtains of flak that the city's many turrets threw up against the screaming Xenos aircraft. For several hours, the battle ground on. The Battle Brothers of Clan Rokan directing endless streams of bolter-fire, missiles and grenades down into the seething horde beyond the walls as armed servitors marched back and forth, keeping them supplied with a steady flow of ammunition. Though no answer could be found for the strange psychic phenomena displayed by the orcs or their utter determination in the face of horrific casualties, mountainous drifts of green-skinned corpses piled up amid blazing wrecks in their hundreds, and the combat readouts of the Iron Hands continued to show optimal results. Even in the days before the Horus Heresy, the Iron Hands always believed that the best tactic was the methodical applied deployment of direct overwhelming force. Since the tempering, that doctrine had been taken to ever greater extremes. Desperate battles against the odds make little sense when mankind faces a war for its very survival, and logic dictates that the Adeptus Astartes are one of the most precious resources at the Imperium's disposal. Surely, then, that resource should not be hurled needlessly into fights that it cannot be won. Before each deployment, the Iron Council therefore performs an assessment known as the Calculum Rationale. All available information is taken into account, including the current enemy strengths, availability of super-heavy or orbital assets, reinforcements, atmospheric conditions, and a thousand other factors of increasing obscurity. This assessment, when completed, states the exact number of battle brothers, vehicles and supporting personnel required to ensure Imperial victory. If forces are available that match the projected sum, that exact amount of war material will be released by the Iron Council and expected to achieve a conclusive victory. No additional warriors will be sent, nor reinforcements provided should failure loom. Equally, if the Iron Hands do not possess the calculated number of readily available personnel to invest a war zone successfully, they will not do so. The annals of the Iron Council are replete with examples of worlds left to burn for the want of a single storm talon, scout or bulk gun. Hence, the chapter's reluctance to take advice. Had they actually listened to the Council of Shadow Captain Sten, who had been fighting this foe for many weeks, they would have better understood the threat they faced. Upon reaching the safety of the city, the Shadow Captain had made straight for the walls, spreading his men out to keep watch while repeatedly attempting to hail the Iron Fathers, or Senior Magi of the city. Sten was considering going to the Iron Hands commanders in person and forcing them to listen when suddenly, to the south of the city, a mighty green light flared. The time for warnings was done. The weird war had arrived. The orcs attacking Columnus were led by a mighty prophet of Mork, an enormous weird boy by the name of Zagdaker. So great were Zagdaker's powers that he had slain the previous warlord, himself a great brute of an orc, and taken the war for his own, gathering about him every frothing warped he could get his glowy green hands on. This was his Weird war, and like some bloated parasite, he used its powers to control the minds of his many followers. The fate of Dictat Ferrum had showed the signs of the warp head's work, but Sten 
have been in no position to make sure. Now, as the green tidal wave of war energy hurtled across the plains and struck Erdry's walls, the Shadow Captain's worst fears were confirmed. The wall did not explode nor collapse. An entire section of the 500-foot wall, quarter-mile deep fortification, simply glowed bright green for a brief second before blinking out of existence, taking its defenders with it. Immediately, the Voxnet erupted, horrified reports and frantic requests for confirmation shooting back and forth. Meanwhile, an almighty horde of greenskins surged into the gap left in Erdry's defences, more psychic blasts lashing out to lick at the walls as the Xenos charged into the breach. Clipped orders rolled across the Vox from the Iron Hand's officers, reserves of armour and infantry moving to plug the gap. Their implanted stimulus subroutines contained no appropriate response to such an unpredictable threat. The Iron Hand's froze stock still for long seconds, twitching sporadically as subconsciously incalculable protocols jarred with reality. Slowly, they began to respond. Storm ravens bearing dreadnoughts and squads of centurions sped towards the gap in the lines, but they would be too late. Thus, as the first Xenos scrambled through the breach, they were met by the Raven Guard. Black and white armoured space marines thumped along the walls, leaping into the air and driving themselves groundwards with blasts from their jump packs. As they dropped, bulk pistols flared and lightning claws lashed out, carving through swathes of orcs. The two forces crashed together, but the Raven Guard were few and the orcs all but numberless. With Zag Dacker and his weird mob shoving their way toward the front, Sten's forces could hold the foe back for minutes at best. The Shadow Captain laid about himself with his lightning claw, tearing an orc's head from its shoulders before immolating two more with his plasma pistol. All around him, his men were fighting like heroes, blades and power fists dismembering greenskins with every swing. Yet the orcs seemed endless. Sten tried desperately to vox for support or reach his strike cruiser in orbit. He was met with a squall of feedback. Could the orcs be shrouding their vox? Then he saw them, drawing up in ordered ranks with their weapons ready, perhaps one hundred yards behind the breach. Iron hands, dozens of them, battle brothers and centurions and dreadnoughts and rumbling tanks all arrayed for war. They were watching impassively as the orcs overran Sten's command one by one. At their head, surrounded by a cohort of mindless gun servitors, Ironfather Christos leaned upon his power axe as he watched the Raven Guard die. Sten felt his wrath burn white hot as he realised that his men were being used as bait. His jump pack roared to life as he turned to hurl himself at the Iron Father, yet at that moment searing green bolts of light exploded amid the battle. Huge fists of ectoplasm scooped up Raven Guard and Orc alike and crushed them into paste. Sten screamed with rage as crackling green tendrils wound his limbs and spun him about, holding him up before an enormous Orc shaman, its eyes blazing behind a freakish scrap metal mask. As the tendrils tightened, Sten's armour began to fracture and spark. Blood spurted from between its plates as bones cracked. And Captain Sten screamed as loud as he could, Damn you, Christos! Just kill me, and may the Emperor forgive you. Still, the Iron Hands held back, waiting for their quarry to be fully engaged. 
Christos moved not a muscle as Captain Sten was crushed to bloody ruin, the Iron Father's attention held by the target optimization counters climbing toward 100% in his helmet display. The Raven Guard died, one by one, buried in howling foes or melted unto ruin by vomited blasts of green energy. As the last Raven Guard fell, Christos sent a single blip of confirmation through his squad's Vox network. Seconds later, the entire breach was awash with flame. Land Raider Redeemers played their Firestorm cannons back and forth, bathing the bellowing orcs in white-hot fire while bolters thundered and plasma guns howled. Warp Boss Zagdaka and his entire retinue were annihilated in a single, perfectly coordinated firestorm. As the psychic shock of the weird boy's death rippled outwards, the orcs howled in sudden, mindless terror or convulsed as their heads exploded like ripe fruit. All across Columnus, the greenskin horde stumbled and stopped, whole swathes dropping dead or running mad as the vast war energies broke loose and wreaked havoc. Leveling their weapons, the Imperial forces advanced upon their broken foes, clearing the breach in the fortress walls and taking the fight onto the plains. This time it was the greenskins that were massacred. Though the war would go on for many weeks yet, with a single blow, Clan Rorcan had won victory for the Imperium. The orcs were ruined as a fighting force, most reduced to dribbling mad boys and left easy prey for the Imperium's forces. But at the heart of victory lay a gross betrayal, and already voices of dissent were being raised among the Iron Fathers. Had bitterness and spite been clad in the raiment of logic, had the cost of victory been too high, upon Clan Rorcan's return to Medusa, hard questions would have to be asked. The Christosian Conclave Following the battle on Columnus, concerns were raised among the Iron Council over the conduct of Iron Father Christos. Post-battle analysis suggested that while his strategy at Erdry had appeared logical, it smacked of an agenda fulfilled. First and foremost was the fact that while the destruction of the Weirdwar had hamstrung the Orc forces, Christos could have had no way of knowing that this would be the case. While the destruction of the Orc threat as a whole might have justified the sacrifice of the Raven Guard force, who, after all, were among the Imperium's finest, their deaths were too high a price for simply blunting the momentum of the Orc offensive. Second was the interference with the Raven Guard Vox links, which was confirmed to have originated from an augmetic signal shroud upon Iron Father Christos's person. Christos's supporters, including the respected Iron Captain Graver, it pointed out that the loss of signal had ensured relations with remaining Raven Guard forces on Columnus were not stretched past breaking point. Yet Christos's detractors on the council suggested a premeditated intent to ensure the demise of Sten and his warriors, stemming from an emotional weakness rather than the merciless strength of logic. Finally, there was the most damning evidence of all. Iron Father Christos had deliberately and willfully refused inload information from Shadow Captain Sten, despite the possibility that his intelligence would have favourably impacted the performance of the Iron Hands. In the face of these allegations, Iron Father Christos remained unrepentant. He soon drew the support of other Iron Fathers who believed his impeccable record and unquestioning adherence to the doctrines of the Tempering still made Christos the logical choice for the chapter's overall war leader. 
Yet, there was sufficient dissent that it seemed only a conclave of the entire Iron Council could resolve the wider issues raised. With the chapter's strength spread out across the galaxy, the conclave would not be a simple matter. The Iron Hands could not just abandon their wars, lest they appear weak to the rest of the Imperium, or show signs of internal strife. Thus, a rotational series of deployments and campaigns was implemented, the clan companies spreading their strength to confound outside observers and taking it in turns to operate closer to or further from Medusa. Incredibly complex and beautifully conceived, this chapter-wide system of deployments worked like some vast clockwork engine. In ever-changing combinations, all the chapter's Iron Fathers were able to attend the council sessions, which convened three times in each Medusan year. Debates and discussions were worked through methodically and in minute detail, with each matter being advanced to a vote, only once all Iron Fathers had been allowed to fully debate its merits. Though a fair and logical process, it was not a swift one. The years turned to decades as the Christosian conclave ground on. What began as an investigation into Christos's conduct on Columnus soon escalated into the greatest discussion of chapter philosophy and doctrine since the tempering. Were certain Iron Fathers more emotionally compromised than they liked to think? And were overt displays of strength and logic being used to veil their weakness? Should all matters be examined from all viewpoints, as seemed only logical? Alternatively, was allowing points of view contradictory to those laid down since time immemorial, a flight into whimsy that would compromise the chapter's strength. Even the true purity of continued technological augmentation was called into question, a matter that quickly became known as the question of the soul. Iron Father Christos refused to change his stance as the years wound on, for, as he claimed, he approached all matters from a position of pure and perfect logic. His supporters the so-called Christosians, gained leverage as the debate continued, despite resistance from notable worthies such as Iron Captain Verox, Iron Chaplain Maris, and the young but gifted Techmarine Cardon Stranus. All the while, the clan companies fought on. As the Christosian conclave moved into its second century, clan company Rorcan continued to fight with skill and distinction. Now battling under the combined leadership of Iron Chaplain Shulgar, an epistolary Lydric, Rokan exterminated threats to the Emperor's realm wherever they were encountered. On Bumetrica, squads Arvos and Horek performed a devastating drop-pod assault against a force of Eldar slave raiders. Epistolary Lydric led their crushing offensive, channeling his psychic might through the mind-forged stave, a storied chapter relic. During the Zamnok Schism, Iron Chaplain Shulgar's land raider, Primarch's blood, was at the tip of a Rorkan armoured spearhead that smashed through the Zemnoshian lines, but the tank was hit by a macro cannon shell, even as Clan Rorkan stormed on to their objective. Shulgar climbed from the vehicle's rent hide, and in a bloody battle on the steps of the Shrine to Glory, personally beheaded the apostate cardinal who had led his people into damnation. Behind him, Rorkan's techmarines were already restoring Primarch's blood to battle readiness. Some years later, fighting at full strength alongside an Adeptus Mechanicus explorator fleet, Clan Rorkan performed the efficient and merciless extermination of the mutant tribes of Salem's world. In a systematic campaign of total annihilation that lasted almost a year, 
the warriors of Clan Rorcan swept every square mile of the planet's surface, defeating seething tides of chaos-worshipping cultists, mutants and freakish spawn. Their efforts allowed the explorators to proceed with an undisturbed investigation of the planet's polar ruins, eventually recovering several priceless archaeotech artefacts, including a fragmented STC. Epistory Lydric led the methodical purge of the last mutant cave stronghold, flanked by four of Rorcan's ancient dreadnoughts, finally declaring Salem's world secured in the Omnisire's name just hours before the explorators completed their own work. So it went on, with Clan Rorcan adding one iron glass victory plaque after another to their company's hall of conquest. There were some who suggested that perhaps Lydric and Shulgar displayed a dangerously aggressive style of leadership, on occasion even making decisions that suggested outbursts of emotion rather than logical diktats. These detractors would cite incidents such as Shulgar's charge at the Battle of Neomlok, a vengeful yet illogical offensive that saw him lead over 50 battle brothers into the teeth of traitor guns. The crashing conflict that followed saw the traitor space marines of the word bearers hurled back in disarray and their plans on Neomlok brought to ruin. However, the cost in lives of Rorkin's battle brothers was significant. Though none could fault the unyielding fortitude of Shulgar or his warriors, the accusation remained that the chaplain had been emotionally compromised when he ordered the attack. For three days, the clan Rorcan had held their defences along the 81st Iron Line, repelling one word-bearer assault after another, and looked set to do so until the foe simply ran out of warriors. Yet when the word-bearers began hurling Ministorum clergymen onto bonfires and broadcasting their screams through massive vox amps, Chaplain Shulgar abandoned his eminently defensible position in favour of an all-out attack, straight into the enemy guns. Yet for whatever perceived failings their brethren thought they might exhibit, Clan Rorcan's record remained one of successes, albeit brought about at what was sometimes seen to be an illogical price. The Christosian Conclave reached its 200th year in 460M41, with the Iron Council's lines of division drawn more sharply than ever before. The chapter was battling on regardless, yet no single Iron Father had been voted as its leader since the Conclave began. The Iron Hand's direction and focus were beginning to erode as their leaders wrestled with their chapter's fate, and the Christosian hardliners gained ever more influence. Then came a name, whispered in the darkness of the chapter's astropathic chambers, that put all other debate to an end. In the Gordania system, the presence of the hated Emperor's children had been reported, operating in great strength, raising cults and subjugating a string of forge and factory worlds. If that were not goad enough, it was said these traitors gave worship to the Sapphire King. Seizing his moment, the now ancient Iron Father Christos vowed that he would prove the strength of his doctrines and show the purity of his logic in the fires of war. With the ascent of the Iron Fathers and the Conclave adjourned, Christos wasted no time in gathering a mighty force and setting out for the Gordinia system. The Gordinian Heresy The Iron Hand's fleet 
that translated into the Gordinia system was huge. Iron Father Christos had assumed the mantle of war leader and assembled more than 800 iron hands under his command. This was the greatest deployment of the chapter for centuries and was accompanied by the majority of the Iron Council. The Christosians were present in force, yet Stronos, Verox and Maris were among a number of Iron Father Christos's detractors, also on board the ships of the fleet. Initial auguries showed that all six worlds of the Gordinia system were overrun by mutants and heretics, yet according to the astropathic distress call, the Emperor's children had only been seen around the factory world of Gordinia Prime. This, then, would be the Iron Hand's primary objective. While smaller strike forces peeled off to begin the systematic purge of the other worlds, a core of 300 Iron Hands, including clan companies Rorcan and Sorgal, in their entirety, made straight for Gordinia Prime and approached High Orbit. Here they were to face their first signs of opposition, as they were forced to blast their way through a scattered cordon of warped turncoat warships. The craft had once been system monitors, Imperial Navy frigates whose crews had turned to the worship of the Sapphire King. These craft now showed signs of their debasement. Weird clashing colours and vestigial mutant outgrowths carpeting their hulls. Thankfully, though, the foe was few in number and came on in a disorganised rush, as though racing one another willingly to their deaths. With calm efficiency, the Iron Hands ships drew up, line abreast, maximised their torpedo and lance spread, and blasted the traitor ships into atoms. Not a single enemy craft reached battery range, each flaring and dying as their warp coils overloaded and their hulls broke apart. Ploughing forward through the drifting wreckage that remained, the Iron Hands made orbit with mechanical precision, releasing swarms of space-capable servo skulls to scan for further foes. As the auto-divination shrines chattered out reams of parchment, the Iron Fathers puzzled over the readings from the planet below. Gordinia Prime was a factory world, its entire landmass given over to the processing of raw materials and the manufacture of weapons for use by the Imperial Guard. It was registered as possessing a labour population of approximately 362 billion souls, spread out across the huge planet's surface. Now, however, the world's biomass appeared both to exceed that sum and impossibly to be less than zero. The figure fluctuating madly even as the scans came in. Stranger still, from the oceanic algae farms of the coasts to the mountaintop spaceports and their cargo thrall townships, there was no sign of any life whatsoever, and no trace of the Emperor's children. Instead, all signs of life now appeared to be concentrated in one small map segment of the primary manufactorum, a nation-sized industrial sprawl in the planet's southern hemisphere. Nyan Fathers Stronos and Verox counseled caution. The twisted machinations of chaos were impossible to predict, and logic dictated that they gather further data before launching their attack. Iron Father Christos was inflexible as ever, driven by his determination to destroy any surviving Emperor's children forces before they could escape. Hesitation was for the weak, he announced, before ordering a drop assault in full force upon the primary manufactorum. Throughout the fleet, Iron Hands disconnected from simulus chambers and apothecary and augmentation frames, submitted to the attentions of the arming servitors 
and marched to their Storm Ravens, Thunderhawks and Drop Pods. The Iron Hands would follow the trail of freakish life signs to the foe they sought, and they would crush them utterly. The Iron Hands descended in fire and fury, their drop pods and landing craft turning the skies dark with their contrails. Holding to doctrines that had served them well since the days of the Great Crusade, the entire force mustered their strength in a single mile-wide drop zone to the southwest of the central processing hub. Drop pods crashed through roofs and smashed craters into Ferrow Creek roadways. Squads of black-clad space marines surging forth and spreading out to secure their landing sites. And Rorkan's massed dreadnoughts marched forward in force. Behind them, heavier landers descended to deploy squadrons of rumbling tanks and centurions into the statue-lined squares and thoroughfares of the Manufactorum. Squads of bikes and land speeders, the preferred steeds of Clan Morlag, raced out along labour processionals and over generatorium sprawls in search of contacts, while scouts of Clan Dorvok crept across rooftops and filtered down into the sewer systems to hunt for threats. No sign of any foe could be seen. The streets of the primary manufactorum were empty, save for wind-blown litter, Shrines to the Omnisire stood empty, their neglected electro-candles burned out. Curdled broth dripped from feeder tubes in the nutritionals and formed puddles whose skins of mould attested to many days of disuse. Everywhere, the Iron Hands kicked down doors or smashed through walls, habs, workshops and Medicaid stations stood empty under a dusty film of abandonment. Still, the Iron Hands' auspexes were reading jittering life signs from all around. As they worked their way toward the central processing hub, they began to hear sounds of industry. Baltus swung up and squads moved into battle formation as the space marines approached the vast iron dome of the hub, listening to the frantic cacophony that rang from within. The hub stood almost 2,000 feet at its crest, 10 miles across at its base, and appeared to be sealed tight, as though against attack or unnaturally severe weather. From within came a maddened din of machinery interspersed with hissing groans and wheezing screams that caused even the taciturn sons of Ferris Manus to look askance at one another. Born on the wind was a stench like burning flesh, mixed with some kind of bilious sweetness, as though gallons of perfume had been spilled into rotted feces. Impassive! Iron Father Christos ordered entrances to be made in the dome's walls. He and the other Iron Fathers would lead the warriors of Clan Rorkan to discover what manner of devilry lurked within. Ironclad dreadnoughts and assault centurions moved in, swiftly tearing yawning breaches through which the warriors of Clan Rorkan followed. The tight confines of the processing hub forced the clan company tanks and thunder-fire cannons to remain behind with the rest of the host to hold the vast plaza that ringed the dome. Refusing to show concern, the Battle Brothers pressed forward regardless. However, within moments, the advance faltered as space marines were confronted by the hellish interior of the dome. Once, the central processing hub had been a hive of gantries, conveyor belts, towering machines and labouring work gangs. Now... It was a vision of hell, for the workers and machines had become one.
Billions of Imperial citizens had been crammed into this ten-mile space, their flesh and bones melded with the steel, circuits and pipes of the machines. Pistons rose and fell with manic speed, driven by great tangles of bulging human limbs. Melted masses of flesh formed twisted gantries where faces writhed and moaned. Human torsos, skin-seared and impossibly bloated, jutted from boiler stacks. They shrieked endlessly as steaming blood vented from their eyes. Here, cogs of bone and raw, blooded nerves rotated at breakneck speed. There, demonic weapons were thrust along fleshy conveyor belts by the parastaltic motion of a billion disembodied tongues. Worst of all was the din. A discordant industrial thunder of jarring voices that tore at the air until the Iron Hands were forced to dampen their audio receptors. Clan Rokan advanced into this nauseating bedlam, weapons raised and anger boiling beneath their self-control. The insult was obvious, for here was steel and flesh combined to create something greater than either. Warped weaponry churned through pulsating machines at breakneck speed, its construction abhorrent yet undeniably perfect. These flesh engines were monstrous beyond words, a demonic perversion that undermined everything they held dear. Centuries of training and subconscious conditioning fought to suppress the revulsion they felt as they pressed forward. The squads voxed back and forth, Clan Rokan's tactical and assault squads taking the lead, while Dreadnoughts, Devastators and Centurions watched their flanks. They had advanced almost to the heart of the structure, their armour stained with steaming gore and trickling fluids, when the compulsion struck. Assault Squad Neem were stalking along a walkway of writhing wires and muscle, Iron Father Christos and Grevere in their midst. Suddenly Christos stumbled to a stop, his whirring limbs stuttering as he missed a step. Grevere cocked his head quizzically, flexing his power fist and scanning the machines around him. There was frantic movement somewhere, but nothing to indicate the reason for the Iron Father's sudden hesitation. Christos gazed around in a daze, sweeping his augmetic eyes across the flesh machines and muttering, Can you see it, Grevere? Do you hear its song? The perfect utility, the efficiency, the strength. Suddenly, before anyone could react, Iron Father Christos plunged a nest of his mechadendrites into the flesh-wet receptors of the machines around him. Grevere's living eyes widened, and Squadneem raised their weapons in shock as Christos convulsed, jaws stretching wide to emit a strangled whine of scrap code. The sound rose in volume, Christos's voice seeming to multiply into a shrieking binary chorus that swelled by the second. Iron Captain Grevere broke his paralysis, lunging forward to disconnect the convulsing Christos, but it was already too late. The ancient Iron Father's macadendrites bulged obscenely, fleshy matter squirting from between their segmented links, and Christos howled with a thousand voices as his body began to warp and twist. What living flesh remained to him swelled rapidly, writhing and bulging as it grew. Clumps of snaking blood-slick wires and tubes burst from beneath armour segments, coiling around his vein-stretched limbs as they elongated obscenely.
The Iron Father's servo harness melded with his grossly swollen skin, its limbs becoming monstrous, insectile things that ended in slavering mouths and chitinous claws. Threat runes lit up across Squad Neem's visors as the seething horror that had once been Iron Father Christos tore free of the flesh engines and surged forward. The machine spawn emitted an ululating howl, bladed limbs lashing out to scythe through Gravir's waist and tear him in two amid sheets of blood and sparks. The horror ploughed on into Squad Neem, Christos's tortured body convulsing as he tore apart his former brothers. Even as the assault squad belatedly opened fire, the story was repeated throughout the dome. Everywhere, Christosian iron fathers were being overcome by the twisted perfection of the flesh engines. The harder they attempted to repress their urges with logic, the faster they succumbed. The effect was already spreading to the most heavily augmented members of Clan Rokan. Dozens of battle brothers lunged helplessly for the hellish machines, many gunned down by their horrified brethren as their weakness revealed itself. The rest jammed augmetics into the fleshy tanks of the machines, cramming fetid tubes into their eyes and mouths as they surrendered to the scrap code's siren song. Even as the machine spawn bloated and twisted, turning upon their revolted squadmates, reality began to shudder and buckle. The temperature soared and plunged as a static-laden wine filled the air. Epistolary Lydric yelled a warning as howling demonic rents tore into being, shimmering portals of pearlescent smoke that yawned wide with every moment. From each rent flowed perfumed streamers of ectoplasmic vapour that clung and slithered like liquid flesh. From amid these vile fronds burst squalling, gasping masses of demons, rippling silks and glimmering jewels set amongst jagged bone claws and lashing leathery tongues. With them came warriors of the Emperor's children, their gaudily daubed armour and thrumming weapons jarring with the howling, swirling beings that surrounded them. Madness engulfed the dome. Bolters and flamers roared, yet Clan Rokan were all but buried in foes. Machines spawn reeled drunkenly through volleys of fire, smashing battle brothers off their feet with every blow as capering demons fell upon them with shrieks of glee. Whiplash talons and glistening blades hacked at flesh and steel amid peals of laughter. As more iron hands clamped down upon their suppressed horror and rage, so did more burst into mutation, their locked-down emotions hemorrhaging and rupturing under the Sapphire King's influence. Amid roiling clouds of poison perfume, the bejeweled demon itself strode from a gaping portal to bask in the demise of the chapter that had brought it to ruin. Tall and lithe, with great claws and silken flesh, the Sapphire King reveled in the death that surrounded it, shrieking praise to its god for its inevitable victory. Yet as Cardon Stronos watched another brother of Squad Rees degenerate before his eyes, revelation struck like a thunderbolt. He was disgusted by these abominations, furious at the weakness of the brothers who had allowed themselves to fall. Crushing those feelings would not undo them, only cause them to curdle into corruption and therein lay the snare. Strength lay not in cutting himself off from his emotions, but from shackling them to his iron will. 
With a roar of effort, Stronos harnessed the roiling emotions that threatened to tear him apart, blasting shots into the mutating battle brother before him as he vented his disgust. Activating his vox, Stronos barked commands to his forces around him. Release your anger, brothers. Let it out before the foe destroys you with it. Slowly at first, then faster in a spreading wave, the Battle Brothers began to disengage their inhibitor protocols and loose ferocious battle cries. Emotional floodgates burst open and the Sapphire King shrieked its rage as the repressed energies that had fueled its spell were vented like steam from a boiler. Freed from the debilitating warpcraft, the surviving warriors of Clan Rorkan gave vent to their revulsion, blasting the demons apart in rains of ectoplasmic filth, or tearing them limb from shimmering limb, Stronos began a coordinated retreat from the dome, the depleted clan company falling back by squad, fighting furiously all the way. They drew warpspawn and traitors alike into overlapping fields of fire and tore them apart in their hundreds. Dreadnoughts performed sudden countercharges that pushed the foe back, their massive fists pulping demons into paste while their guns roared. Fighting their way free with uncharacteristic ferocity, the Iron Hands broke out into the windswept plaza before the dome, the foe still howling and shrieking at their heels. The moment the last battle brother backed through the breach, the tanks of Clan Rorkin struck, smashing into the flanks of the horde as it flooded forth. Their thundering fire and grinding tracks exterminated the demons in droves. Still, the otherworldly horrors came on, the Sapphire King striding amid a cadre of Norse marines. The demon towered over its followers like a heathen idol given life. Centurions of Squad Harkel stormed toward the beast, their weapons blazing, but were driven back by the howling guns of the Empress children with ears and eyes bleeding until their helmets swilled with blood. The Sapphire King berated the Iron Hands in a clashing voice, both beautiful and grating. Had it not granted them a marvellous gift, had it not given them the chance to embrace a strength like nothing they had ever felt, to shed mortal weakness forever, yet they, ignorant, droning, machine men that they were, had proven themselves as dull as rusted iron and undeserving of its blessings. Now they would all die. Demonettes on whirling bladed chariots ploughed through the melee, lopping off heads and limbs as they passed. Machine spawn drove pulsating tentacles of nerve cable into the hulls of tanks and dreadnoughts, the vehicles shuddering and bulging with vile corruption as their crews drowned in fleshy foulness. The warping screams of the Sapphire King and its underlings shattered armour, reduced bionics to sparking ruin, and caused eyes and organs to rupture in showers of blood. The remaining warriors of Clan Rorkan desperately struggled to hold their lines in the face of such a disorientating attack, and it seemed like they might still lose the battle. Then... With an impassioned roar that rang over the battle, Epistolary Lydric charged. With him ran his command squad, bionic limbs pumping and bolters blazing. The librarians swept the mineforged stave in great arcs, each whistling blow hammering traitors from their feet and blowing them apart with thrumming blasts of psychic force. First one noise marine, then another, was sent sailing through the air, mashed armour leaking gore as they died. Around him, Lydric's warriors fought with a fury, 
they had never before allowed themselves to display. Piston-limbed blows lent a sledgehammer strength that staved in plumed helms and hacked through gaudy breastplates. With a supersonic squeal of outrage, the towering demon lashed out, coral-hued claws snipping the arm from apothecary Rumus and punching through the faceplate of Brother Lorgos. Lydric narrowed his eyes as the beast towered over him, forging his hate and anger into a single white-hot star behind his eyes, even as the Sapphire King swept its talons down toward him. The librarian unleashed his roiling powers, sending them surging from the tip of the mine-forged stave and straight into the freakish demon's face. Tainted blood splattered out amid a spinning shrapnel cloud of warped black bone and flickering jewels. Decapitated by the thunderous blast, the Sapphire King's body reared backwards, claws flailing, rancid black filth jetting violently from its stump of a neck. Still, the demon's form convulsed, bulged obscenely, and then exploded in a spray of noisome black filth that stank like rotted perfume. Their lord destroyed. The demons of Slanesh began to flicker and fade, their strength deserting them by the second until they faded away like smoke on the breeze. Impossibly outnumbered, the last few Empress children fought on with mad glee, but in the face of Clan Rokan's wrath, they were swiftly blasted into bloody ruin. The surviving machine spawn had died with the Sapphire King, their revolting bodies hemorrhaging black sludge and perfumed foulness. As the dust settled around the last fallen corpse, Clan Rokan were left with just the howling wind, the mutated, horrified murmurs of the surviving Battle Brothers, and the distant clamour of the flesh engines pounding ever onward. Iron Chaplain Shulgar surveyed the battlefield that had come so close to damning the chapter forever and knew what must be done. Return to the ships, he ordered, his voice a grating mechanical snarl. From orbit, we will burn it all. Nothing remains for us here. Before we continue, let us give a brief background to the Sapphire King. It was at the precise moment that Ferris Manus's head was scythed from his shoulders by the traitor Fulgrim, the thrice-cursed degenerate, that the Sapphire King came into being. Spawned from the psychic bow-wave of Manus's death, this demon was forged from the Primarch's frustrated pride, his boiling anger and sorrow, and from his shame. From the moment of its birth, the Sapphire King fed on the repressed emotions of the soul-scarred Iron Hands. It basked in their chained desperation, bound to their fate by the emotions they felt but would not express. The demon bedeviled them across the centuries, offering opportunities for damnation disguised as steps away from the weakness they so feared. It nudged the minds of imperial officials and potential foes, forever seeking to goad the Iron Hands into spending away their humanity like coin. The chapter bent their every effort to purging the weaknesses of the flesh, never realising that the more they demonised their wants and needs, the greater the hold the spectre of their repressed emotions gained upon them. As the Christosian conclave reached its zenith, the Sapphire King judged the Iron Hands ripe to fall, 
and set its trap in motion. Each iron hand carried within his heart a rancid seed, a bomb of repressed passions that could erupt to destroy him at any moment. The demon would simply provide the spark to light the flame and watch the chapter burn upon a pyre of their own emotions. Or so it thought. A new resolve. On Gordina Prime, the Iron Hands had survived a deadly trap, yet it had taken its toll. Lost manpower could be recouped over time, lost vehicles repaired or replaced, yet the psychological wounds the chapter had suffered might prove fatal. Nearly a third of the Iron Council had fallen into the demon's trap and been lost to corruption, along with many of their battle brothers. Should this revelation ever reach the Inquisition, it could be disastrous. The Iron Hands found themselves forced to question the very principles upon which they based their existence. The Christosians had held absolutely to the tenets of the tempering, their literal interpretation but an expression of the direction in which the chapter had been moving for thousands of years. Iron over flesh, logic over emotion, the merciless, relentless purge of those weaknesses that threaten ruin. Yet what if this very obsession with emotional excision and the perfection of the machine was a weakness in its own right? Much reduced, reeling in the wake of the revelations they had been forced to confront, the Iron Council threatened to disintegrate. In an emergency session of the Council, panic bubbled beneath the surface as dozens of theories, arguments and proposals were aired and dismissed. How could the chapter continue, voices asked, if everything they did, everything they stood for, was tainted by the very weakness they had striven against for so long? It was in this moment that Cardan Stronos came to the fore. Rising from his throne, Stronos unplugged himself and addressed his brothers with his unalloyed natural voice. The chapter had been given a gift, he announced. Though their foes tried to lay them low and corrupt their purpose, the Iron Hands had instead seen the potential for darkness within themselves and had overcome it. Our chapter was driven to the very lip of the precipice. We were forced to stare over its edge into the Stygian depths, into the darkness that awaits us should we ever fall. Yet for we did not, what saved us from this terrible plunge, brothers? What has proved our redemption? Not logic, not desperation, dogmatic purge of all things perceived as weak. It was our souls that saved us and the strength we hold within ourselves. Our courage, our collar. It was the qualities which make us more than just unthinking steel that pulled us back from the brink. Cardon Stranos addressed to the Eye of Medusa. It was at the booming culmination of this speech that he delivered his immortal words, a quote that would be enshrined upon iron glass plaques across Medusa and beyond from that day forth. With steel, we are stronger, but without a soul, we are nothing. This would be the first day in 10,000 years that the eye of Medusa had rung to the sound of applause. Despite disquiet from the few remaining Christosians and the voice of Mars, Cardan Stronos was elected war leader that same day and has been re-elected at every opportunity since. The words of Cardan Stronos had not effected an instantaneous change in the Iron Hands. One speech could not reverse thousands of years of indoctrination. 
even had every last iron hand been open to its message. Yet it was the beginning of something, a slow but palpable shift in attitude that would take centuries, beginning with the Iron Council and filtering outward as the years rolled by. Following Epistolary Lydric and Iron Chaplain Shulgar's elevation as Iron Fathers, the number of librarians and Iron Chaplains accorded this honour steadily grew. Logic still drove the Iron Council's calculations, yet they were always on guard against the dangers of heresy, and efforts were made to curb the most inhuman of their impulses. Most importantly, on the battlefield, the Iron Hands tempered mechanical logic with an edge of their Primarch's wrath. They would never reject the steel in their hearts, yet many battle brothers now forged it anew in the fires of their rekindled souls. Rorkan Ascendant The warriors of Clan Company Rorkan uh, took well to the teachings of Cardan Stronos. Their iron chaplains tended their brother's soul, striving to steer them from the paths of complete emotional disconnect or obsessive self-mechanisation. Use of the simulus chambers was reduced until some clan companies, Rorkan among them, barely used them at all. Face-to-face -face briefings were now preferred, alongside the tactical flexibility of acting without preset parameters. The chapter still looked down upon those who chose passion or wrath over cold, hard logic, yet they now recognised that true strength came not from fleeing their emotions or attempting to amputate them altogether, but from achieving mastery over them. As Iron Father Feros would often tell new tech marines upon their return from Mars, a titan is a mighty weapon of the Omnisire, but without the fires of its reactor, it is but cold, dead metal. As the years passed, there were still those amongst the Iron Council who viewed Stronos's methods with suspicion or even outright alarm. Some warned that he was walking the same path as did the Primarch 10,000 years ago, and that he was leading his chapter not away from weakness but toward it. Yet even these die-hard malcontents could not deny the chapter's many victories in the centuries that followed, nor that clan company Rorkan led the charge. Rorkan, their notoriously aggressive temperament fusing well with Stronos's doctrines, distinguished themselves in one battle after another. On Ultrens four, they were deployed to repel a Tyranid splinter fleet that surged from the Gynamar Cluster. At the final battle in the Sanctum of Defiance, the entire clan company deployed in a single chain of unbreakable steel, tanks and infantry drawn up side by side to exterminate the last overwhelming charge of the Tyranids. Their guns roared with mechanical fury as beasts beyond counting poured in a tide through the Sanctum's great arch. Casings and spent power packs piled in drifts around power-armoured legs. Machine spirit firefields and helmet augers overlapped with seamless efficiency, missiles and shells and bolts pouring like rain into the avalanche of flesh. Still the Tyranids pressed forward, showers of bioacid and whining bone projectiles smashing battle brothers from their feet or chewing through the armour of mighty tanks. Yard by desperate yard the Tyranids came, scrambling over growing mountains of their own dead, yet they could not reach their foes. The final Tyranid organism, a monster the size of a bane blade, shuddered and crashed down dead mere inches from Clan Rorkan's battle line. Elsewhere, 
their conquests were no less inspiring. The Draken March system was cleansed of orcs in a merciless series of lightning offensives. Clan Rokan crushing each tribe of greenskins before they could gather their vastly superior numbers. On Hydesi, Iron Chaplain Shulgar and Iron Captain Grolvok faced the towering demon prince Magnathrax, cutting the unnatural monster down even as its cult was exterminated by spearhead thrusts of predators, vindicators and land raiders. When the brutish warboss Krug led a mighty horde of his bloodaxe boys in an attack upon Noctul's Hope, a handful of warriors from Clan Rorcan stood behind the now chief librarian Lydric in defence of their famed healer's spire. Battle erupted amongst the Medicaid shrines of that holy city, the orcs pouring through the streets in ramshackle columns of tanks. Yet Lydric led one perfectly executed ambush after another, carefully preserving his warriors and the free dreadnoughts that accompanied them through days, then weeks of conflict. Krug himself led a final sledgehammer offensive, intended to exterminate the librarian's force, but was instead messily slain when the long-awaited reinforcements from Clan Averni and Sargol descended in wrath. Never was the successful fusion of iron and flesh more evident than when Clan Company Rorcan was deployed to the war-torn world of Bromok, a hive world that had once boasted vast oceans teeming with life, Bromok had been torn asunder when a vast mechanised tomb complex awoke beneath its surface. Yawning fissures broke open in the deepest oceanic trenches, trillions of gallons of water draining away in a matter of days to leave a stinking quagmire of salt mud and rotting biomatter that covered half the world. From this awful wasteland rose legions of mechanised warriors, their armour thick with verdigris and muck. It would be over a century before the Imperium officially recognised and put a name to these terrible beings, yet the governor of Bromok did not need an official designation to recognise the Risen Warriors for the terrible threat they were. They marched upon the hive cities in ranks, many hundreds of thousands strong, eldritch engines of war hovering above them as they came. The outmatched planetary defence force levies rushed to man their posts and a frantic call for help was sent. Only weeks later, the ships of Clan Company Rorcan made orbit over Bromok, accompanied by Cardon Stronos himself. Lydric and Shulgar led the Clan Company, their command now shared with the adamantium-skulled Iron Captain Grolvok and an eccentric master of the forge by the name of Firos, whose gallows humour was notorious throughout the chapter. As these five inspected the hollow map, of Bromok on the bridge of the strike cruiser Solemn Silence, it became clear that the planet was already lost. The PDF regiments had fought bravely, but they were outnumbered and hopelessly outclassed by their deathless foes. One hive city after another had fallen, their streets swarming with mechanical horrors, until only the hive Primus remained. There, the defenders still held out against impossible odds, fighting tooth and nail to hold their barricades, while bulk lifters and cargo barks fled into orbit, bearing thousands upon thousands of refugees. Once the Iron Hands might have dismissed the people of Bromok as weak and unworthy of their aid, but no more. Yet they were not space wolves or black templars to rush headlong into the breach at Hive Primus and save all they could. 
Instead, Tactical Squad Talok was dispatched in a Storm Raven gunship accompanied by Iron Chaplain Shulgar, who would assist the evacuation, applying their fearsome presence and infinitely superior grasp of logistics to ensure matters proceeded apace. Meanwhile, the rest of Clan Rorkan prepared for an immediate combat drop. Telltale energy signatures have been detected emanating from one of the great oceanic rifts, signatures that match those given off by the machines seized centuries earlier on Dawnbreak. The Iron Hands did not recognise these monstrous mechanical aliens, yet they knew their works. This time, however, Cardon Stronos led Rorkan not to claim the engines of the past, but to destroy them. The Great Trench ran almost 80 miles end to end, gaping over 100 metres wide and surrounded by hard-baked mud and teetering, desiccated drifts of what had once been thriving coral. From its depths leaked a leprous green glow, and it was into this shimmering corona that the warriors of Clan Rorkan plunged. Drop pods hurtled down in a tight knot, whistling between the jaws of the chasm and plummeting ever deeper on trails of flame. As the transports fell, the glow around them turned to a lurid glare, and then they were falling into a vast cavern, a good three thousand feet below the planet's crust. The cave was cyclopean in scale, dominated by immense ziggurats of glassy black stone that swarmed with robotic alien workers and warriors, the drop pods crashed down in a tight grouping between these mighty edifices, iron hands and dreadnoughts bursting free to engage the foe that surrounded them. Stronos led the charge at the head of Squad Curvan, his bolter kicking in his fist and the axe of Medusa cleaving through metallic bodies with every swing. A trio of dreadnoughts, venerable Furnius and two ironclads, began to carve a path through the milling automata. Weapons roared, and mighty fists crushed the metal-skinned Xenos to twisted wreckage. The strange, deathless creatures were reacting now. Slowly, but surely, bringing waves of floating metal constructs to bear against the invading Iron Hands, and Clan Rorkan's tech marines stalked in the dreadnoughts' wake, ready to tend to their ancient charges should they fall to enemy fire. Suddenly, the foe's ranks were torn by fresh blasts as a wing of Storm Raven gunships roared overhead, flanking the mighty form of the Thunderhawk Forge Star. The aircraft dropped low, their thrusters roaring as their ramps yawned open to disgorge Thunderfire cannons and a wave of centurions into the fight. The Vox rang with Master Feroz's grim laughter as he led them forth. Though the foe's numbers were vast, most of their leaders were far above, coordinating the final battle against Hive Primus. Soulless machines, they could not compete with the vital crushing force of Clan Rorkan's offensive. Finally, at the base of the largest ziggurat, Feroz summoned a pair of lumpen servitors bearing a heavy iron chest, covered in panels and dials. As the device was slammed down into the dirt, Feroz busied himself with its activation while the warriors of Clan Rorkan formed an impenetrable wall around him. Here and there, blasts of green energy flayed the armour and flesh from a battle brother or blew a vehicle apart in a roiling ball of flame, yet the automatons could not break through. 
All the while, Cardon Stranos remained vox-linked to Iron Captain Grolvok, ignoring his subconscious protocols as they barked at the rising casualty rate. Clan Rorcan's guns thundered a merciless staccato, punctuated by the howling blast of las cannons and plasma guns as they built ramparts of mangled mechanical bodies all around their position. Finally, Iron Captain Grolvok voxed through, the chance of recovering further refugees from Hive Primus now stood at less than 20%. The Iron Hands agreed cut-off point. With a curt command, Stronos ordered Clan Rorcan's aircraft down. Iron Father Lydric directing furious covering fire from the Devastator squads as the Battle Brothers scrambled back aboard their aircraft. Ramjets roared and the Storm Raven gunships hurtled skyward. Forge Star covering their retreat with a thunderous bombardment of fire. In their wake they left the iron chest, cascades of glowing runes flickering across its surface, and its energy shielding soaking up a rain of green fire as its timer counted down to zero. Even as the airborne clan Rorcan burst from the rift and into the open sky, their ancient ordnance detonated. Servo-bonded chains of crystalline prisms shattered, releasing howling swarms of insane machine spirits bent only on destruction. The spirits flowed outward in a tide, corroding and devouring every mechanical system in their path. Nothing was safe. The bodies and weapons of the Xenos burned along with the weapons and systems of those few defenders who remained. Behind them, as the various craft of the Iron Hands pushed hard for the upper atmosphere and their waiting cruisers, Bromok plunged helplessly into a new dark age, the planet's orbital silos detonating spontaneously and filling the skies with drifting radioactive clouds. In orbit, a ragged flotilla of refugee ships gathered to watch the planet die. The Iron Hands, inscrutable as ever, denied the existence of any mechanical foe in the wake of the disaster, carefully discrediting those wild tales told by the refugees. Though the chapter might still keep their secrets, millions of Imperial lives have been saved thanks to the strength and determination of Clan Company Rorcan. Though at times they may have embraced Stronus's way to a lesser extent, the ongoing battles of the other clan companies were no less heroic. The efforts of the chapter bolstered key war zones and led Imperial Crusades to victory. While the Iron Hands were still viewed with suspicion by much of the Imperium, they were also respected for their unbending strength. Yet still, the galaxy has darkened around the Iron Hands, disdainful of whatever personal victories they may have achieved. The Iron Council has seen long-standing allies fall to madness or corruption and thought back with disquiet to days long past. They have looked on as great swathes of the Imperium have been plunged into darkness and brooded upon what the future may bring. They have viewed the changes even within their own chapter, changes wrought by Cardon Stronos and epitomised by the resurgent clan Rorcan and drawn parallels with a bitterly mourned father and his final awful fate. With so many threats to face, with sanity and surety eroding all around them, the logic of the calculum rationale no longer appears enough. Finally, the Iron Council have declared another great conclave. This gathering, the Grand Calculation, will be used to determine the future of the Iron Hands chapter. The Iron Hands will not trust in the vagaries of fate to direct where they should stand during mankind's final battle. 
Instead, the Iron Council will consider every factor, assess every threat, and determine where their warriors will serve the greatest purpose. Their successor chapters too will be considered in this equation. Envoys already wing their way through the warp to secure common cause with the Brazen Claws, the Iron Lords, and even the Sons of Medusa. While the Iron Council's debate grinds on, Stronos and a handful of his closest supporters continue to direct the chapter in war, battling to hold back the darkness while the Iron Council's grand calculation is completed. A veritable conclave of Iron Fathers leads Clan Rorcan in these dark days. Chief Librarian Lydric, grim-faced Chaplain Shulgar, Iron Captain Grolvok, and eccentric old Master of the Forge Firos. These four have been the masters of Clan Company Rorcan for several hundred years, and have filled these centuries with glorious victories over the foes of man. It is their private belief, based upon a mixture of cogitation and gut instinct, that the chapter will choose one of a select few foes against which to level its might. Yet even they cannot predict where their chapter will strike, or whether it will elect to do so in time. As High Fleet Leviathan extends its tentacles ever further into the galaxy, the Tyranid race reveals ever more of its abhorrent nature. A single great and terrible machine, forged entirely from corrupt alien flesh, seeking only to consume the Emperor's realm as fuel for its own blasphemous existence. Not only do the High Fleets represent an incalculable threat to the survival of mankind, but in the eyes of the Iron Hands they are a dire abomination. Indeed, Cardan Stronos himself has been dispatched to face this very threat, lending his strength and wisdom to the fight against Leviathan. With their strength increasing daily as more and more tomb worlds awaken, the dynasties of the Necrons present an ever greater threat. If the Tyranids offend the Iron Hands with their revolting biomechanical nature, the Necrons are more blasphemous yet. In the eyes of the Omnisire, such soulless machine men are the ultimate expression of heresy. Within the ranks of Clan Rorcan, there are many who would gladly spend their lives to see this scourge destroyed. Yet a third course presents itself, a more shadowed purpose, guessed at uh, through assembled hints and portents. Twelve times has this foe struck at the Imperium, each time leaving a trail of clues to his ultimate intentions. Twelve times the actions of Abaddon the Despoiler have been faultlessly catalogued by the Iron Hands, their every possible ramification extrapolated by conclaves of Iron Fathers performing logic spirit seances. Over the centuries, the Iron Hands have become ever more certain of this foe's intentions, even gathering sufficient information to hypothesize the very hour at which the despoiler may strike his final blow. Many among the Iron Council now argue that this, surely, is where their chapter must deploy its might, for no war could be more vital. Yet, insular as they are, the Iron Hands have not seen fit to share their calculations with the wider Imperium. Were their conclusions to prove incorrect, the Iron Hands would be made to look foolish and frightened to their allies. This is something the Iron Council will never risk, so their warnings remain ungiven as their debate grinds ever on. Should a conclusion be drawn, should the successor chapters join with their founders once more, should support be offered by the voice of Mars, thus far noticeably silent in the conclave, then a mighty weapon indeed would be forged. Where this hammer blow would fall, against which threat to humanity none can say, yet its impact would be devastating indeed. 
Upon this day, Clan Company Rorcan would march to war alongside a gathering of their brothers like nothing seen since the days of the Great Crusade. However, the Iron Council's deliberations run long, with no end in sight, and every day the end draws a little closer. Clan Company Rorcan fight on beside their brothers. Every battle they win, another step along the road to redemption. Yet they can only hope. As the fires rise around them, they will not all be in vain. Well, there we go. A bit of Iron Hands. I, you know, before I delved into this, I thought the Iron Hands were a bit boring, but this was pretty fucking good. I was really impressed by it, you know. Uh, really harsh, really good, really dark. Um, had some fun with some deep ideas, you know, philosophy. A bit of, bit of pseudo-philosophy in there. The meaning of existence and so on. I like that. That's when 40k is good, when it does a bit of, you know, it has fun with some pretty high-level concepts just for a laugh. You know, the writers know what they're doing. And uh, this was really great. This was really, really good. Now, obviously, this leads up to just before the fall of, um, the fall of Cadia, the birth of the Great Rift, the new Imperium Indomitus, or whatever you call it, Gilliman's Return. So, I don't know, actually, where things stand with the Iron Hands at the moment, unless I'm just being completely ignorant and there's some book somewhere that tells me. I, I think they're kind of just where they are in the lore, in the setting. It's kind of just been left on ice, I think, at the moment. Um, interesting situation for them to be in. I know on the map, they're very close to the Eye of Terror. Now, whether that... I think they would... I think they would actually be on Imperium Nihilist's side, which is interesting. Um... Because they're right up there by the Eye of Terror, Medusa is on, the, on that side of things. So they should be on that side of things. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens with that. Unless they're going to just go, actually, the planet was on this side, don't worry about it. <laughs> Which, you know, they've done before. <laughs> Maps are ephemeral, after all. But, um, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting the channel. I'm getting back to doing sort of big videos, uh, more stuff as we've been going along. Not as quick as I wanted to, but life gets in the way. Uh, I'm doing as much as I can and I'm trying to get as many big videos out over the Christmas period as I can. So do look forward to them. If you'd like to support the channel, like these heroes whose names are going by now have, then uh, please consider becoming a, a YouTube member or a Patreon on Patreon. And there's some other options within the um, description. Anyway, I really appreciate it if you do. And to everybody who does, lads, really, it really, really helps. And I appreciate it. I can't say thank you enough. But otherwise, if you don't want to do that, please do give the video a like, subscribe to the channel, let me know in the comments what you think. All these things really help a small channel like mine. And um, I will be back very, very soon with more stuff. See you later as we go into the Christmas period 2023. This is in November 2023. And uh, yeah, more stuff is coming up. Again, thank you all very much. And uh, sorry about the lateness of this one. I meant to get it out a few weeks earlier. I'll be back again soon. Thank you all very, very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.